VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, September the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So as you heard from Brian Medor, for us Jays fans, it's going to be a long few weeks as we see whether or not they can qualify for the playoffs. Got popped again last night by the Texas Rangers, 6-3, tied for the last wild card spot. At the ballpark yesterday, one of the Jays' all-time favorites, Joe Carter, of course, with his walk-off World Series winning home run uh, in 1993. So, you know, Joe and some of the best players, he's one of the members of the level of excellence, right? We just saw Jose Batista be put on that ring around the Rogers Center recently. But it was interestingly enough, it was on this date in 1991 that Joe Carter became the first baseball player with three consecutive 100 RBI seasons with three different teams. He did it in Cleveland, San Diego, and of course with the Blue Jays in All right, there you go. I see some people circulating some pictures of a big fleet of Porsches on the dock at St. John in the St. John's Harbor. And of course, they're here to participate in Targa. Now, it begins tomorrow with a skills review and practice session. Then there's a stage review that's mandatory on September the 15th. And then they begin racing on the 16th of September. Wraps up on day 8, September 21st, Conception Bay Central, and then the awards ceremony on the 22nd. So Targa back in town. All right, remember when Targa was being covered by speed channel we're getting international notoriety one of the few target races in the world and some people love it some people you know the deal all right let's stick with travel here for a second so we've all heard the story about you know the concerns with the frequency of air travel not only the cost which is prohibitive for so many but now the news coming that there's going to be some adjustments made by air canada pal is going to replace jazz aviation for the most part fly under that air canada express banner but it comes with a bunch of layoffs in gander happy valley goose bay and in deer lake happy valley goose bay no longer serviced by jazz aviation at all 13 job losses there Gander, Derelict, looks like they're going to be uh, kept open seasonally, but also significant job loss. Gander loses 16 positions, Derelict losing 25. The big problem here is that Gander has seen a resurgence since the pandemic, so the bounce back has been real, you know, whether it be with rotational workers coming in for gold mine expansion or what have you. But this is absolutely a massive concern for folks, not only in those three areas, but I would suggest for the province at large. And so this is a question going out to our friends and our listeners in and around Stephenville. So the pledge to bring more commercial traffic back to that airport by Carl Diamond of the Diamond Group. There was long-running skepticism as to whether or not this deal would ever get done, and I understand that for sure. So there was the unknowns of who is Carl Diamond, does he have any money, where is he going to get the money, but now apparently, and it's been confirmed by the airport authority and the province, that the deal is done. So what I'm asking the folks in Stephenville is are you seeing any activity? Because we were told things would start to uh, change and some work would be done immediately. I don't know if I've heard an update from anyone that says they've seen any additional activity around the airport or on the grounds of the airport site. So if you have any info, it'd be great if you could share it with us this morning. And remember, he's talking about investing a couple of hundred million dollars. Well, backtrack. 
So the sale was completed at $6.90, but it also came with covering some $1.1 million in liabilities. And that, once again, has been confirmed. But $200 million yet to be secured for the creation of what Mr. Diamond said we announced back in 2021, the creation of some 5,000 jobs. Manufacturing these big Hercules drones, biggest in the world, 117 feet long, 80 feet wide, able to carry 52,000 pounds. And then all the upgrades required. And yes, they want to lure commercial traffic back to Stephenville. So while we see the loss, while we see the loss in Happy Valley Goose Bay and in Deer Lake and in Gander, we know the bounce back has been pretty significant here at St. John's International. But can Stephenville play a role on this front? So if you're in Stephenville, please do indeed bring us some information if you have it. All right. So you've heard once again in the news, and these are the stories that really knock us all off our chair. And it's a story of a fishing vessel that has sunk off fleur de lis So not only does the community grieve, but when so many people in the province and all around the province make their livelihood on the merciless North Atlantic, these stories strike true and hit hard right around the province. So of course the community of Fleur de Lis will be grieving this morning, but I would suggest many people listening to this program, even if you're not listening, are feeling the same way and hearts and condolences go out to them. So what we know is that there was a crew of four, two are dead, One has been rescued, and the search continues for the fourth. And we'll cross our fingers for a positive outcome for that remaining search. And our condolences to the families and friends who have lost. So yesterday on the program, we spoke with someone about the uh, LifeWise warm line, crisis line. So for first responders who see the unthinkable, now they'd be able to speak to people who have lived experience. There's a staff of five, and of course, when people see what you can't unsee, whether it be responding to a suicide or a fatal car collision or accident on the highway, for instance, it must be overwhelming and traumatic to say the very least. So LifeWise is going to be an important component for our first responders. On that front, on behalf of the province's paramedics, well, at least a few of them who are in pretty constant contact with me, It's remarkable. One of the only pieces of news that came out of the most recent provincial budget, because it went through the basics, a lot of it is pre-announced, as we know, right? I mean, the structure and the choreography of getting up to budget day is well understood. But one thing that was in the budget that we didn't really know much about was the paramedics business. So prior to the budget, there was consolidating dispatch for air and ground. But we had a lot of confusion and a lot of communities wondering what would be the future and the presence of paramedics and ambulances where they live. So the province has now said they're in the process of bringing in the consultant, again, to try to figure out a way to best consolidate the some 60 unique contracts that were out there offering ground paramedic services. We haven't heard much since. And of course, leading into that, we were losing paramedics. Community members were worried. Paramedics were worried. The disparity between the pay working for the public or the private sector, hours of work required, there was a massive uh, issue brewing. It's come to a head. And yet this important piece of work, not much in the way of updates since. Now, I know you can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden everything to do with ground ambulance services is settled or solved. But it would be important to get an update because the paramedics that I speak with, they tell me that they hear more and more stories of people not only leaving but considering leaving because, of course, the stresses of the job and the unknowns in front of them is a big deal. It would be nice to even have some of the basics. Are we working towards the old classic hub-and-spoke model? Will that mean more ambulances and more paramedics or not? But we just do not know. Now, there may be some 
more farther afield, remote communities that may indeed still have a private offering, but we just don't know a bit more, uh, anything more than that. So on behalf of those paramedics that email me, that's the kind of information we're going to try to get for you and your colleagues, because who knows, it might be me or you. The next time we have to pick up the phone, it might be to call 911 and hope that there's a paramedic and the ambulance close by. All right, so that's, that's that one. From that to something much more pleasant. So, good luck and safe travels to the members of the Avalon Dragons. They're a dragon boating team from Paradise, Newfoundland and Labrador, heading up to Montreal to race in the Quebec Cup. I've covered the Avalon Dragons uh, over the years a couple of times. So, it's crews of breast cancer survivors, or as they like to call it, breast cancer thrivers. Some of them have a diagnosis as long ago as 20 years, some of them much more recent. So an opportunity to get together, get out in the fresh air, to train, support each other. And of course, with that exercise, which is good for everything under the sun, they have found... They have found a spot and a place where they could do speak with people with the similar lived experience and, of course, the exercise associated with it. So it's a great story. It's a cool sport. So good luck to the Avalon Dragons at the Quebec Cup coming up in Montreal. So there you go. Okay. So we're hoping to spend some time on the program this morning with Josh Me at Food First because the province has now released the updated cost in the 2022 Newfoundland and Labrador Nutritious Food Basket. So it basically is a way to look at costs of nutritious food across the province. And this is the second year we've done it, or they've done it, so that means we've got some year-to-year comparisons. And the numbers are unbelievable. Basically what the Nutritious Food Basket is, this. uh, Nutrient requirements for a family of four. Specifically, an adult man and woman, a teenage boy and a young girl. How they came up with that, I don't know, but that's the basics there. The food basket consists of 61 foods from the 2019 Canada Food Guide, which has been updated since, but this is the measure we've been using. Here's the basics. October of 2022, it costs an average of $309 for a family of four in the province to purchase enough nutritious food for a week. That's $1,236 a month. That increased about 12% from 2021. So price, food, food price inflation is very real. Dig into some of the uh, specifics here. The highest cost, of course, the north coast of Labrador. $467 a week. That's $1,868 a month. That's up 18.5% since 2021. South coast of Labrador. Weekly cost, 413 Up 14% from 21. Most expensive region on the island, the northern peninsula. Average cost of $385 a week, which is $1,540 a month. That's also up 18.5% since 2021. Western Newfoundland is up 10%. That's $335 a week, or $1,340 per month. Central Newfoundland, Central and Western uh, Labrador, about $324 a week. It's up 125 and 12.1% respectively. And predictably, the least expensive, or the cheapest, whatever the right way to put it is, is Eastern Newfoundland. Weekly cost of $292, $1,168 a month, up 11.8% from 2021. And what we know is, for the most part, our rate of pay has not kept up with it. It's hard to envision a time and a place where food costs come back to earth. Generally, when things go up, it's a long time before they come down. And even on top of coming down with prices, you know, we're paying more for less volume. What was once a five kilogram unit is now maybe four and a half kilograms, and the price has still gone up dramatically. So here's where it gets even more complicated for people who are on social assistance or provincial support. 
some of the numbers as they break it down is, you know, the benchmark is spending about 20% of your revenue or your income on foods. Now, when you see some of the income support numbers, it is extraordinary. For some folks, depending on where you live, it could be as much as 90% of your income to buy nutritious food for a family of four, an adult man, woman, a teenage boy, and a young girl. So as is put in this release from Food First, here's what it says. First, we have legislated poverty by having income floors that are well below what would, would meet people's basic needs, like other provinces who have done different uh, strategy with the indexing of costs, but those are the food increase numbers. And again, the bank of Canada can do whatever they see fit regarding their benchmark interest rate, even though it takes 12 to 18 months for any hike to have any appreciable impact on lowering inflation. But inside the world of food and grocery prices, I don't think what they do and the levers that they have available to pull are going to do a whole, whole lot about what goes on inside the grocery store. So those are the updated numbers. Maybe if Mr. Smee is available, we can break it down a little further. Okay, we've got an update from the uh, ombudsman regarding pandemic supports and some of the complaints they've received about folks being told you have to repay the support and telling CRA, I already paid it back. So there was uh, some 60 complaints were being fielded by the ombudsman. He's given us updated numbers now that says that there's probably in and around 20% or 20 complaints on the desk of Monsieur Francois Boulot. Again, on top of that, you know, people want monies that went out the door to folks who are ineligible to be clawed back. There's a bad side and a reasonable side to that conversation. But what we have never heard, again, is for the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. Very helpful to business to keep the doors open during what were the darkest days of the pandemic and all the restrictions that were put in place. But how many of those companies that may indeed have been in, uh, been eligible use that monies not to necessarily pay their staff, but to create dividends, you know, for the first time ever, or to pop up their dividends for their stakeholders? And again, I think the best example that I've been able to find and to use repeatedly is the quiet part being said out loud at the annual general meeting for the Royal Ottawa Golf Club, showing a surplus of $1 million, and when asked why, their treasurer said, the wage subsidy. Maybe, just maybe, the muckety-muck members of that club, the Tony Royal uh, Ottawa Golf Club, could pay that back. What do you think? All right, I don't even know what to say about this story, but I guess it's part of a broader conversation, and it is quite troubling. Is yesterday, in the courts, the allegations against Marcus Six, and I do think it's fair to refer to the fact that, yes, he was a substitute teacher, and, yes, he was involved in the volleyball community. Why? Because some of these students and or players he may have engaged in those two areas may indeed been on the receiving end of his fictitious accounts luring people for sex. It's a dastardly story. So now there's an additional five people who have come forward. Three of them are minors. So 49 charges yesterday means 50 charges allegations against this fella. Uh, counts of uh, possession of child pornography, accessing child pornography, all sorts of relationship with, you know, 12 counts of luring a child. So the basics are, I mean, that case will make its way through the courts and we'll all see what goes on. And of course, human nature means there's a rush to judgment in some corners. Innocence until proven guilty is still the benchmark of criminal justice, but the story is troubling. And in many parts, it's disgusting and disgraceful. 
So the Newfoundland Labrador English Speaking School District sent out letters to parents of students province-wide. Additional resources will be afforded to schools and students who need them, psychological supports and what have you. But I guess the biggest part of this is not only the immediate aftermath of hearing these stories, is once again, it's not just this one person. And it doesn't have to be someone even living here in this province. It could be from anywhere around the world who will be trying to lure your child into a compromising place. So we just have to talk about it. they got to talk about it in school, whether it be the uh, digital pile-on in the world of so-called bullying and or sextortion and or these types of accounts. As difficult as it is and as brutal as it is, the conversations have never been more important. So online safety, if you're a parent and you like to talk about even some of the ways you approach it that you might think might be helpful to others or anything that you like to talk about in that really unfortunate Unfortunately, it's not even a severe enough word. Okay, uh, a couple more. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get her going. So as the province has struck a committee to look at reviews about safety and a variety of things inside long-term care facilities and personal care homes, there's actually an ongoing national consultation for safe long-term care as well. I don't know if there's been much in the way of interaction between the stories that we're harvesting here and the national consultation. And of course, a bit of a different setup in different provinces. In other provinces like Quebec, for instance, there's a lot of privately owned and operated long-term care facilities. In this province, the vast majority are publicly owned and operated. But if you are, have a story, whether as a resident or a family member, it's worthwhile reaching out to and dealing with the provincial committee, but also putting it on the radar of the national consultations, which are currently on. It opened on the 21st of July, and it runs all the way to the 21st of this month. So any new input, you have to bring it forward by the 21st of the month. I have some contact information here. It's a long, convoluted email address. So if you send me an email, I will reply in kind with that one. All right, a couple of quickies before we get to the break. What's pretty unusual and pretty rare is that a sitting member of parliament in Canada has testified in front of the American Congress. And this is on the Congress Committee for China's Foreign Interference on Capitol Hill, Michael Chong. So, of course, he was targeted specifically and personally based on some of the comments he made about Huawei's technology and, of course, the treaty, the treatment of the Uyghurs, which he called a genocide. And as a result, he and many other members of the, China, the Chinese diaspora were targeted. So, you know, we've heard these stories. He was really quite uh, cross and frustrated, and justifiably so, when there was a lag time between ceases knowing what was going on with Mr. Chong and his family versus when he was told about it. He did say yesterday under questioning that he's been treated better in recent months by the federal government, applauded widely by the American committee, you know, for his so-called courage or whatever the right word is to come forward and testify. But these issues are seriously important. It's not just about elections and institutions. It's got a lot to do with social divide. It's got a lot to do with the economy. So Mr. Chong, in a rare occurrence, and if you want to take that on, I think that's, that conversation looms large. For a while, it was all the headlines in the nation's capital. And then, of course, all the housing concerns and cost of living concerns and all the rest kind of took it over. But I think in the long run, unless we get this right, whether it be with the registry of foreign agents and or, yes, the public inquiry that's in the offing, and all major parties have approved the appointment and the terms of reference to See Chong testify in front of the American Committee on this issue is really quite the sight to behold. But anyway, 
Let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to kick it off talking about the fact that the important loss of Liberty Consulting and what that means for the PUB and oversight and monitoring of the activities at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro and also the new appointment of Kevin Fagan, a former executive with Hydro for many, many decades, and he's now the chair of the PUB. Some are applauding his wealth of experience in that position. Others worried about potential conflict of interest. We'll take that on, and we're going to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the man behind the Uncle Gnarly blog. That's Des Sullivan. Good morning, Des. You're on the air. Morning, Paddy. Nice to talk to you. Happy to have you back on the show. You know, we've discussed this a couple of times with a couple of callers, but interesting in your perspective. You know, at the onset of the Muskrat Falls conversation, uh, Manitoba Hydro International was the consultant being used by the PUB. They proved to be pretty ineffective, I would suggest, replaced by Liberty, who were the exact opposite. What do you think it means now that Liberty has decided to cut ties with the PUB? Well, this, uh, the, the Liberty uh, resignation from its role, traditional role, really since, uh, which began at Dark and L, uh, is, is part of a, of a much larger story. And I'd like to start here. I, I think, Patty, we have to begin with understanding that what has occurred here is a fundamental sellout of the PUB to Hydro. There's no other way to express it. It is disconcerting. It suggests that we learned absolutely nothing from the uh, Commission of Inquiry into Muskrat Falls and all the various recommendations that the commissioner made. It suggests that we don't really have a whole lot of concern over governance when it comes to important issues. Now, uh, let me just say this. The PUB is not just any regulatory body. The PUB is an important semi-judicial body, making because its decisions are so important, and they are expected to be well researched. They are expected to have a certain very specific uh, process which must be strictly adhered to, and all those who make those decisions must be completely beyond reproach. Now, I don't know Mr. Fagan uh, from Adam. He, I have no doubt that he's a very honorable individual personally, but that is not the point in this whole issue. What we have to be concerned here is with the integrity of the PUB as an institution, and we cannot, given what has transpired, we can't let the integrity of the PUB fall below another standard still. Understood. And I mean, Liberty did a terrific job. I read the quarterly reports. They were comprehensive and detailed. They shone a bright light on things that we would necessarily probably wouldn't have heard of uh, other than their diligence that they put forward. So agreed. I mean, the, the integrity of the PUB, because whether it be even just how they set the price of fuels and stuff, people have big questions. And those questions need and deserve answers. And people in positions that we can, you know, understand their background, understand their integrity, understand their rationale. Mm-hmm. Fagan brings forward a wealth of experience. There's no denying that. Uh, Dennis Brown, for instance, the community consumer advocate, thinks that that's what the board was lacking. Uh, Ron Penny uh, says I, that... I, pres- I fundamentally disagree with uh, with uh, Dennis on that point. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Let's, let's uh, just remember 
that liberty was an essential part of what occurred at the PUB level uh, since Darkinell, because the public of Newfoundland would never have learned what actually went on in terms of how hydro degraded the uh, the, uh, the the electrical system. <clears throat> excuse me. At Holyrood and at other at the other thermal plants, unless unless Liberty had, t- had taken great care to do the investigations, and they informed us of the detail of what had actually transpired, and that it wasn't just about it wasn't about aged assets that it was about uh, substandard performance, substandard maintenance, deferred maintenance. These were all issues that were chronicled in great detail uh, by Liberty. And that same diligence, Patty, has gone on throughout the Muskrat Falls project because fortunately they were given the authority to make sure that given what was happening on Muskrat, that we were getting reports, the PUB were getting reports with regard to whether uh, the, the, uh, the whether Muskrat would be able to offer the province the kind of stability and reliability that were that we were that we were promised. And again, you know, I, I can go back to even the incidents that occurred uh, on uh, the, the, the the damages on the line, uh, issues of software, and so on. All those issues were not reported to the public by either Nelcor or Hydro. They came from Liberty. And you, you've, you've read them. There's, there's, a, there's an incredible number of reports, and they are all of a high standard. I'm, I'm quite certain that as a blogger, there's no, there's no way in the world I could have done uh, 10% of the work on some of those issues on this liberty was there with the factual research to enable us uh, to know exactly what went on, not the spin that Nelcor were always willing to put on it. So, so now we have uh, an individual who comes out of uh, a government crown corporation that has been substantially discredited. And we have to look at that appointment in the context of how it will impact the decisions of the PUB. One of the confu- well, I don't know if it's confusing, but it's a bit contradictory. Liberty's also saying that they didn't have the resources, and they're also concerned with Newfoundland Labrador Hydro's pace of play and consideration of diesel generation if and when Hollywood is ever decommissioned. Jennifer Williams, who we had on the program, the CEO at Hydro, you know, she paints a very different picture. They're entertaining some 20 different studies, and there was no thought that it's going to have to be diesel, but that just was latched onto by the general public and seemingly by Liberty. So on one hand, Hydro's been long accused of going too quick, not doing the appropriate <coughs> due diligence, you know, making decisions on the fly versus taking their time, which they seem to be doing now, or that's how Jennifer Williams uh, paints it or portrays it, and Liberty says they're moving too slow. Which one is it? Well, uh, you know, I'm not equipped to uh, to, ma- to, ma- to make that decision, and I'm not I'm not going to try. I will say this: that I I think it's unfortunate. With great respect to her, Jennifer Williams has a tendency uh, to put rose-colored glasses on in anything with regard 
to uh, what Hydro does. She's the CEO. Maybe she feels that uh, she has to play that PR role. I don't think she does. I think uh, that she would be a much more effective CEO if she were more straight up and, and give us the straight goods on uh, on what the options are for Newfoundland uh, in, 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 in terms of trying to achieve some kind of security uh, on our electrical system after spending uh, $13, $14 billion. Uh, this, is a, this is not a time for PR, Patty. This is a time for straight talk, and so far, Jennifer Williams has not provided it. Let's go back to... Uh, let's go back to Liberty. If you, the, the, Liberty, the letter from Liberty to the PUB is very opaque. They clearly did not want to come out and say precisely why they were moving on. But Liberty is in the consulting business. Consultants are not known to give up contracts uh, so easily. They, I would suggest to you, sir, that we should be considering whether the appointment of Mr. Fagan is, uh, is, is, is uh, integral to this decision by liberty, that perhaps they feel that they will not now have the flexibility to make the kind of investigations that they had up to now. We have to be very concerned about that. We've had uh, we've invited Liberty on here a couple of times for those types of conversations. Just see if we can glean any more information. Even some of the conflict of interest measures that have been put in place. Mr. Fagan won't will have to recuse himself for applications prior to his appointment. Uh, for the next six months, he won't have won't be involved in the process for any hydro application, uh, Newfoundland power applications, a case by case basis. So, yeah, I mean, you know, six that, months that doesn't he, really uh, overdo like forty years. We, we, yeah. We we let's let, we're we're going to appoint a judge, but hey, we, he will not be allowed to go to work. Well, uh, this is uh, I, I I find com- <laughs> uh, you know this this kind of defense of Mr. Fagan's appointment is just completely unacceptable. If Mr. Fagan is in a position where he can't really perform his role, then he should not have been appoint- appointed. And John Hogan, the Minister of Justice, ought not to have appointed him. And Dennis Brown, presumably the consumer advocate, right? The, the advocate of the consumer should not be defending his appointment. Instead, it is, is, it is as if there is no one else in Newfoundland with the capability to be chair of the PUB. And I would suggest that's utter nonsense. And if, it, if that is the case, Patty, if we can't find another soul in Newfoundland with the qualifications to be chair of the PUB and who can be independent and perceptibly independent, then we should go elsewhere. We, we send people all over Canada and the world in various occupations. I, if, if we had to go to British Columbia or Ontario or somewhere else to find someone who is both qualified to be PUB chair and decidedly independent, I'd say he's our guy or she's our gal. That's not what we are concerned about. We have to be concerned about the institution of the Public Utilities Board. And the public will remember 
the public will remember the abuse of process which hydro slash Nalcor uh, uh, imposed on the PUB throughout the Muskrat Falls reference. You have to uh, remember uh, the comments of uh, the commissioner in, in the context of reporting the behavior of, of Nalcor slash Hydro. This is, an, this is a discredited institution in Newfoundland which successive governments successive governments have failed to to shake down and make sure and and recreate the kind of uh of uh of authority in which the public can have confidence and i would and suggest that it's not necessarily all self-inflicted bills 60 and 61 compromise the pub you know so they have no role in right setting regarding muskrat falls issues regarding wind and what have you so while the pub was sitting there ready to be the regulator they were ta- that was taken away from them you know Yep. The, the rug was pulled off from under their feet. So some of what people might think about the PUB might not even be the PUB's doing. Well, that that may be so, but it, all the more reason the government has to strengthen the PUB, not further weaken it. And 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 like I said, I I I want to be careful here in that I don't want to uh, uh, suggest that somehow uh, Mr. Mr. Fagan is not up to the job. That is not the point and i want to make that perfectly clear the point is that this is a semi-judicial body it has we have to perceive that it is fair and it has to have the all the resources necessary for fairness and when we go to a discredited Crown Corporation like Hydro and pluck someone who has been in the business there for years and say, we're going to put you in charge, but ah, no, you may not be able to consider certain uh, issues for six months. Look, let's let's get serious here. Uh, government is being terribly unwise. I, I, I don't know the rationale other than uh, Hydro seems to always be able to wag, uh, the, you know, that dog. I, 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 uh, uh, I don't get it. There's no initiative. No one can point to a single initiative where since the Muskrat Falls debacle, we have attempted to strengthen Hydro or even strengthen the PUB. In fact, we're going in the opposite direction, and uh, the the public, at some juncture, the public are going to be aware that these the weakening of those processes are going to bite them, because at some juncture, uh, you know, uh, it's going to reflect on their energy bill, and they ought to think about governance processes long before that, because remember, we real we're going to rely on a, on a an important person from Hydro to uh, to cast doubt on whether the PUB should be engaged in um, in setting a rate for a project that was demonstrably a lie. Des, uh, I appreciate the time. We'll have to leave it there for this morning, but thank you for this. All right. Nice to talk to you, Patty. You too, Des. Take care.
But right, bye bye. It's Des Sullivan behind the Uncle Gnarly blog. When we come back, Food First NL CEO Josh Mead to help us break down the issues regarding the 2022 Newfoundland and Labrador Nutritious Food Basket. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the CEO at Food First on L. That's Josh Smee. Good morning, Josh. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Give us the headlines, the initial takeaways from the updated 2022 Nutritious Food Basket numbers. Yeah, so the nutritious food basket, for folks who don't know, is kind of a standard cost for a family of four for a week's groceries. The province collects it every year. Uh, They send people out into stores, like uh, checking prices on store shelves all around the province. Uh, And then they release this food basket information telling you how much it costs to buy uh, a basket of foods kind of aligned with the can of food guide, right? So uh, the numbers for 2022 just came out. Uh, It will probably not shock you to hear that uh, food prices have shot way up. So the uh, the average across the board, across the whole province, is $309 a week. So, so that's about $1,230 a month. And that's a 12% increase from the 2021 numbers, which is obviously uh, something that people are feeling. And then if you take a dive into it, uh, um, you know, obviously those numbers are pretty variable across the province, right? So like, on the north coast of Labrador, you're looking at $467 a week, uh, and that's gone up 18.5% since 2021, which is wild. Um, south coast Labrador, similar, just a little bit lower weekly. Uh, Northern Peninsula, next one down, also up 18.5%. Uh, and then uh, probably unsurprisingly, the lowest number is eastern Newfoundland in and around St. John's, where you're at uh, $290 a week, but that's still up almost 12% from, from the 2021 numbers. So I think it's a good it's a good way of showing just the reality of what's going on in people's pocketbooks, right? Absolutely. The, you know, and then we get into, you know, whether or not you can envision a time where prices come back to earth because, you know, rate of pay, whether it be on social assistance and or working in the private sector, wherever you work, our pay is not keeping up with inflation and certainly keeping up nowhere close to food inflation. So how do we digest these numbers? Because the, the contrast between my pay and my grocery bills is bigger than it ever has been before. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and even if you're one of the folks who are getting some kind of cost of living increase lined up, like you said, with in- inflation overall, it's not keeping pace with with food. And I think you know the place you see that the most too. And and we ran these numbers uh, looking at income support rates. So right now with these 2022 numbers. Pretty much almost everyone in this province on income support, everyone living outside of eastern Newfoundland, would have to spend more than 100% of their check just on food to, to afford the kind of nutritious food basket, right? It's, it's wild. And I think you're right to highlight uh, how tangly this is. It's, it's certainly not likely we're going to see food prices fall back down in the near future, right? Like there's, there's big picture stuff happening in the world that's still happening. The, the, the war in, the, in Ukraine is the biggest one right um and so i think from a policy standpoint um you know the the place we can get at this most quickly is around um you know cost of living relief for folks particularly for folks earning the least uh but 
this is hitting people, you know, across the income spectrum. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough ride regardless, even if, even if we were doing more, which I think we should for the lowest income earners, this is something that's going to be, I think a, a really long-term challenge, to be honest with you. There's not an easy, not an easily easy solution for it. When we talk about housing, it's somewhere around 30% of your income spent on yeah. housing. What is it in food? What's the benchmark we use? You know, like the benchmark is ideally you should be uh, at or under around 15, 15, 20 percent. Um, and for lots of people, that's not a reality, right? So the best way to think about that, uh, you know, with these with these kind of numbers, if you wanted to be in, in that space, you would have to be earning, you know, in your household for your family, seventy five to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. Right. Um, and that's <laughs> there's a lot of families in Newfoundland and Labrador that are not pulling that kind of money. Right. Um, and that's I think uh, sometimes our heads have trouble wrapping themselves. Or we have trouble wrapping our heads around these kind of numbers. Right. But that's, you know, that kind of seventy five thousand dollar figure um, would be the bare minimum of household income to not be spending too much on food in the place where food is cheapest in this province, which is which something to think about you know so if you're saying 15 to 20 percent on income support even in eastern newfoundland and labrador it's about 90 percent to keep up with that maximum uh, maximum number we're using in the nutritious food basket 129 percent in uh, northern labrador i mean those numbers are staggering so it's really shocking like i I, and i know like you know income support is a system that uh this is true in every province it's been around for a long time uh and so you know the people who designed it aren't around anymore but can you imagine uh you know sitting down to design something from scratch and saying okay here's how much people need to afford a minimally nutritious diet we're going to give them far less Right. Uh, and now, to be fair, um, there are lots of other things that come into play if you're on income support. Right. Like there are some tax benefits. And the biggest one, if your family is the Canada child benefit. Right. And that really has had a ton of impact on reducing child poverty and child food insecurity in the country because it's cash transfer reasonably big for people who have kids. Um, so like you can that's the one place I think you get a little bit of hope here is that we can see in the numbers when. When the Canada Child Benefit was brought in, you can see the impact on food insecurity pop right up in the data. And so, like, you know, at, at, at some level, that's what you just need to do is, it, is address that. Uh, and we can see how it has been addressed. So it is better than it was for, for folks at the very bottom. But, uh, but it is wild to think about uh, just, you know, even even thinking through, like, when, when COVID started and the CERB rolled out and we decided that $2,000 a month was a bare minimum for everybody, that's way higher than anyone is pulling in in benefits from from any kind of income support program anywhere in this country uh but but here we are I know that Food First has been involved with a bunch of different hubs trying to bring, you know, proximity concerns to where people are. You know, the new Western hub that you've opened up. Are you familiar with the 75% resale issue at the farm tables at farmer's markets, for instance, which has created a bit of a, a strange uh, playing field for those farmers because we need more and more of these farmers. We need them to have opportunities to generate the revenue, to keep them in business. So are you familiar with that 75% resale issue? 
Yeah, a little bit. I, I, it, it's something that always, I, I used to be obviously involved in the St. John's farmers market, and it, it's something that comes up, I remember, from uh, in farmers markets everywhere, is basically deciding, you know, say a farmer comes to the market, how much of their table has to be their stuff, and how much can be resold from others, right, to help keep that person's business sustainable. So, um, yeah, as far as, as much as I know about it, it's just that I, I think some of the markets across the province have higher or lower thresholds for this, and this definitely and I'd say this is like one of the one of the more common debates that happens in the farmers market space. I remember from when I was involved because it is an interesting question about like how do you balance kind of the the interests of like small producers and larger ones, people who can bring in bring in stuff from others, uh, and how are you honest with with customers? And uh, it's it's a tangling one to be honest with you, uh, but it's it's one yeah I remember hearing a fair bit about. Uh, do you think it hurts the issue regarding proximity to? nutritious food especially local produce yeah i don't know it's it's an interesting it, it, it's really tricky i i think when we think about proximity to local produce you know it's been a real challenge in this province to set up sustainable markets that let local producers uh, get things to people, right? Like it, it's been it's been a really heavy lift to get those off the ground. Um, so it's it's hard for me to say what the the right number is that balances, you know, making sure that someone can show up to a market, especially in the early days when you know you might not be getting that many customers through the door, and and what the balance would be um, that doesn't crowd out crowd out the newbies. Right, I think that's that's the balancing act markets have to do, but I'm not sure there's like a single right number there, you know. Uh, Josh, as always, I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for this. Yeah, thanks, Patty. And if uh, folks want to take a deep dive on the on the market basket measure, the the food basket measures, there's a blog up on the Food First website with uh, with lots of numbers in it. Which is, of course, where I got it. Thanks a lot, Josh. Talk to you again <laughs> All soon. Right, thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll speak with the executive director of our Thrive. That's Angela Crockwell. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the executive uh, executive director at Thrive. That's Angela Crockwell. Good morning, Angela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm good. I am calling now. I wanted to promote a fundraiser that uh, Thrive is having next uh, weekend on September 23rd. It's called Ride for Refuge, and we're raising funds, obviously, for our organization. And uh, just wanted to make people aware of it. If they want to get involved, they have an option of doing a walk. Um, They can do either 2.5 or 5-kilometer walk. And there's also an option for a bike ride for um, either a 10- or 20K um, bike ride. Um, Registration is happening. We'll start at City Hall. And um, and the walk and the bike ride is pretty much just in the downtown core. Um, and we just want to make sure that uh, anybody who wants to get involved um, can go to our website or any of our social media and sign up the register. Or if people want to support our cause, uh, again, they can go on. There's a platform where people can donate. Um, and recognizing, you know, I just heard the call from uh, Josh over at for Food First recognizing how much pressure is on people now to just afford um, the basics of food. Um, We recognize that the amount of charitable dollars out in our community is certainly lessened. Um, But if people have like even $5 will really help us reach our goal. 
And so not only a, a goal of a target for fundraising, but you and I have talked many times. I'm familiar with what Thrive does and the importance it, it is and it has in the community. What do you want to tell the folks about Thrive that may indeed pique their interest to want to be part of this event and to uh, contribute some money or whatever the case may be? Yeah, so Thrive has a bit of a unique uh, space in our community. So we run the only street-based outreach program. So we literally have um, people out on the street multiple times a week uh, connecting with people and trying to offer support. Um, We also operate the only uh, alternative uh, education program for young people that includes GED preparation and testing. And we also have a unique program for uh, folks who've um, experienced sexual exploitation and human trafficking. So we've worked really hard to fill gaps in what was existing in our city and to add maximum value back to the community while also collaborating and working very closely with a bunch of community partners. So we're trying to reduce duplication and really work towards filling those gaps. You know, I remember reading a story not that long ago. You're talking about denialism in the community, about exactly what the extent of the problem is here in the community. Do you think so, think anything's improving there? Because some people think some of the issues that you deal with, sex trafficking and otherwise, that's in the movies, that's in Thailand, that's in Los Angeles, that's not here. What do you want people to know? Well, I, I do think there's still a, uh, a some form of denialism that occurs in our community, but I do think it's decreasing as we unfortunately start to see the reports in the media of uh, the number of folks who are unfortunately being charged with, you know, child luring, exploitation, you know, the the production or distribution of, you know, child pornography pornography um, and uh, and also the the folks that people can see now unfortunately who are um, without a roof over their head and are sleeping rough in tents um, throughout our city I, I do think people are starting to become aware of um, the significance of the challenges that um, that not only this community but our province is facing with some of these um, social issues. We see a case new now in front of the courts where someone has some 50 charges, many of them against minors, and luring is part of it and child pornography is part of it. Of course, allegations yet to be proven true in a court of law, but it just goes to show that, you know, given there was a story last week about a teacher who once was spent time in this province being accused of similar crimes in New Brunswick. So it's very real. We can't pretend that big city issues, international issues aren't at our our doorstep and the vigilance required in the awareness campaigns that are absolutely critical are going to play a big role in keeping people safe. Uh, Before we run out of time, Angela, give the folks the details, the where, the when, one more time for the upcoming event. Yeah, sure. So it is September 23rd. Registration or check-in. People can register even on the day of. Would start at 10 o'clock at City Hall in the uh, foreign room, and we'll start our walk or bike ride by 11. We'll have a light meal, and people should actually be done by uh, by 12:30. So, um, so those are the details. And people can go to Thrive's website, thrivecyn.ca, or any of our uh, social media, and you'll see links to. Um, to be able to register and get all the details there. Appreciate the time. Keep up the good work, Angela. Thanks, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, sometimes it just becomes possibly so overwhelming that you want to believe that those types of issues are not happening where we live. You know, what is... Look, 
I hate to be sensational and hyperbolic about these things because it's just not helpful. But we all had that feeling of, you know, keep your door, leave your doors unlocked. And, you know, there was nothing to be too extremely worried about online or in the community, you know, for physical presence and or digital presence that could put people at risk. So his it's here and maybe just we have pragmatic conversations about it are required and you know talk about the presence online and what have you the people involved in some of the posts that are being made uh, online you know it's just so dangerous right uh, people are disgraceful and they're willing to say just about anything about anybody for whatever purpose agenda driven or otherwise uh, people are getting hurt reputations are being sullied people's lives are being upended so you know you really have to be mindful of the fact that when something is said especially the anonymous people out there who are some of this the scourge of the uh, uh, of the online community and at large the people who say horrendous things just because with no foundation nothing to back it up you know no rhyme or reason just mean-spirited liars it's just awful to watch and so we just all have to be careful to you know sift through to realize that the vast majority of what we see is absolutely 100 percent unadulterated nonsense and lies because people are getting hurt and there's no reason for it and there's no cause let's take a break for the news when we come back plenty of time for you don't go away Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number, I can't see all the fingers there. Day five? Okay, let's go to line number five. Good morning, Terry. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Terry uh, Cormier. I come uh, from Cornerbrook. I'm here in Cornerbrook right now. We're looking the Bay of Ireland. Uh, first of all, just sympathies in, to the to the families of the people who lost their lives in in in, uh, in, in that fishing disaster last night. That's just a, a, a terrible disaster. I want to talk to you. I, I think I want to talk to you a little bit about the um, way the federal government continues to bully uh, the indigenous people of Newfoundland. Um, and uh, we've talked a little bit before. Uh, I'm not sure if you recall, but many years ago, I was born and raised here in Cornerbrook. I went off. I had a 35-year career in the Canadian Foreign Service. Uh, but I come from here, and this is where I grew up, and my grandmother and my father were indigenous people, and I'm an indigenous man. I and this is a question of identity at some point in terms of uh, coming out as an indigenous person, like when you were raised being ashamed of being indigenous, when there was no, no example whatsoever of indigenous reality, as a deliberate effort to stamp it out. Like, you know the story, 1949, there were no Indians in Newfoundland. We were literally written out of history. It took decades and decades and decades of activism before... Uh, in 1987, a small band was created in Con River. And then decades and decades more before the federal government finally realized that there were indigenous people who had been living in this part of Newfoundland, in this part of Canada, in this part of the world, for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm looking at the Bay of Islands right now. Uh, I, 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 was, I was born here in Cornerbrook, but my, uh, my grandmother... Uh, 
my grandfather, her, her father, was born here in Curling, and another one was born on Woods Island back in 1822. My, the people have been here for a long time, and clear across western and central Newfoundland, it's the, it's the reality. Like, there are a lot of people with indigenous ancestry on the west and central part of the island. It's a result of history. Nobody else was allowed to settle here while it was the French coast until the French shore until uh, really until the beginning of the last century. Um, so this, this uh, process of creating the new Halipu Mi'kmaq First Nation began. Uh, a whole bunch of people applied. Some, we got in. It was a staged process of looking at the applications. Uh, um, myself uh, and all members of my family who applied are, were founding members of the Halipu Mi'kmaq First Nation when it was first created, uh, based on ancestry and the fact that, you know, we have connections to the community and that we, uh, we kind of live a Mi'kmaq way of life in some sort of way uh, in this, you know, in the, uh, this century. Um, the federal government got concerned. The ban was created, like it was founded in 2011. It had 23,000-plus members in 2011 and a whole whack of new applicants that had not yet been processed but which the agreement in principle that took decades to arrive at allowed for the, an extension of time to process them. The federal government said no. The federal government unilaterally decided there's too many indigenous Newfoundlanders, there's too many, <laughs> there's too many people from Newfoundland who are claiming this status. We've got to fix this. There's too many, too many Newfoundlanders who are indigenous. We're going to put in place this process. And they, they laid on the table this supplemental agreement, which the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador, thankfully, on June the 19th, came down with a judgment by Valerie Marshall, saying this agreement was never legally adopted. The agreement never was legally adopted by the indigenous leadership of Newfoundland and Labrador. Because of, the, because of Newfoundland corporate law, it's a bit of a legal thing. But it was never put to the people either. Like, it radically changed the agreement in principle. 10,400 people were kicked out after they went through this process. 10,400 people who lived for seven years as indigenous men and women who were proud to stand up and say, you know, I'm a Mi'kmaq man, I'm the grandson of Mary Elizabeth Prosper, I'm, I'm, and be proud of it. Well, I mean, including including tons of the founding members, it's always felt like it's been reverse engineered. They, the federal government had a number in mind. They were overwhelmed with uh, applications. And consequently, the, the boxes that had to be checked saw results where people who maybe didn't live in a recognized Halipu or Mi'kmaq community and their brother who does live in one was given membership and the others were rejected. It just always felt like they had a number in mind. And when, when that looked like it wasn't going to be the num numbers that got approved, they change the process. Since there's been a class action lawsuit uh, lodged uh, about this issue, and rightfully so. Yes, I think you're exactly right, and I think that's, I've read the judgment by Valerie Marshall several times, and it makes very clear what, the, what went down here. The feds got concerned there were too many Indians from Newfoundland, and they, were, they weren't going to have it, and they imposed this thing. They imposed it. They gave them no time for consultation, even amongst themselves, let alone with membership, uh, which was required. I mean, you, got, you can't radically change a whole agreement like that and not even and, and, and pretend it's like putting a comma or fixing a, you know, a number or something. It's not. It is a radical. This, and the, the thing that really bugs me about it, well, lots of things bug me about it, but the feds would never have tried this anywhere else in Canada. This supplemental agreement with very explicit directives, you know, show us the receipt for the boat you took 10 years ago, show us the plane tickets you took, was 
administratively abusive. And they have never tried anything like that in Canada before. To, to, they wouldn't do it with any other people. They would not try it, I'm sure of it. They're, they're messing around with Newfoundlanders, to use a word that I can use. Uh, and, and they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. So I have, I mean, I, I, they, they, I, I encourage people to, uh, to tell Ottawa to stop their bullying. It's not the local indigenous leadership here. The directives, I mean, here's another thing that, is, uh, that blows my mind. But the federal government also in, made the, the indigenous leadership sign an indemnity agreement, okay? 30th of June, 2013, the same day they made them sign the supplemental agreement saying, take it or leave it or we'll legislate. Okay, and indemnity agreement constrains people. Canada, the leadership here can't say anything without Canada's consent, and Canada can't do anything or say anything without the leadership's consent. So local indigenous leadership feels very constrained in their ability to advocate for their own people. They have to have the explicit permission of Indigenous Services Canada, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, uh, uh, Canada has signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I know the instrument well. My last job with the Department of Foreign Affairs, I worked for 35 years with Foreign Affairs. My last job was at the Canadian Mission to the United Nations in Geneva, working on human rights issues. I worked on the declaration when it was Canada voted no when it first came up for vote in the UN. Uh, I worked on the... So I know these issues, and I know what, what, they, what they've done. They know it's wrong. The feds know it's wrong, too. They have had to make accommodation for handicapped people, there are complaints before the Canadian Human Rights Commission, and rightly so. Um, and they've also tried making accommodation now for, um, other, for the Canadian Armed Forces and former RCMP. And it's very hard to understand why anyone would make exceptions for specific groups. I mean, it's, you can't say you can be Indigenous if you work for the RCMP. But you can't be indigenous if you worked for, I, we're a nurse, or we're, or we're, 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 whatever you were doing, it doesn't make any difference. That's not a basis in which to, uh, you know, identify, and the feds will drag this on out to eternity. They will really drag it on out to eternity. But people can do something, they can put pressure on the federal government in particular to say stop bullying Newfoundland. Very quickly Terry because I do have to go uh, and I'm not involved in this but I get a sense and maybe I'm completely off base that some of this is because maybe just maybe because the Halpu Mi'kmaq band is a landless band which comes with a whole different set of complications versus some of the treaties that have been signed over the years. Do you think the fact that it's a landless band has anything to do with this? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, of course, Patty. And it's it's uh, the fact that the Halapu is a landless band when the whole of Newfoundland is unceded indigenous territory boggles the mind. In this supplemental agreement, they they created a list of 67 specific communities that they said were indigenous communities scattered all around the central and western Newfoundland. Right, like the whole of. The, West and central part of the island has been inhabited by, by our, our ancestors for well, 10,000 10, years or more, various indigenous people. Um, so, yes, the fact that it is in a landless band was a huge concession, which um, was made when, when the feds finally agreed to create this band. And I, don't, I think Halapu should put it back on the table. The, the band, for instance, doesn't have access to certain programs uh, for Indians, uh, for housing, for instance, because it doesn't have a land base on which to build the houses. Uh, you know, it does, it, it, there's a lot of really, really good things that have happened um, since the formation of the band, and I want to leave you with, with an acknowledgement of how 
much the landscape has changed. Like there is much more. Uh, uh, there's a great deal of pride in in in, in your indigenous in this background. There's a, a lot more public display of it and ceremonies. Um, and, and the programming money that's going into things like medical and education is making a profound difference for a lot of people. And, and it spills over to the whole communities. Like this is this has been a. It's very positive. But it is nonetheless. The federal government is treating Newfoundland Indigenous in a way in which they have never treated Indigenous people anywhere else in the country, and they really shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. So um, I'm, thank you for, for listening to me. And, if, uh, uh, and uh, Recon- Truth and Reconciliation Day is coming up on September the 30th. Uh, it's a day in which uh, many of us reflect on or try to spend some time thinking about um, the, the truth and of our of our background, and, and un, unspeakable violences were inflicted on on many Indigenous people, including here in Newfoundland, and and the the suppression of Indigenous identity continued, you know, through the churches and the government until the 1970s, 80s. I mean, it's a pretty recent phenomenon, as everyone knows. So um, I thank you very much for letting me share this this morning. Um, uh, the, the Valerie Marshall decision is a landmark judicial decision in the recognition of Indigenous rights in Canada, and I hope the federal government is convinced to just rescind the supplemental agreement. Just say, okay, we acknowledge that this is not right, and we're, we, 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 we're going to just scrap it and reassess it, do what you promised to do under the original agreement in principle. They'd have a bigger band. That's just too bad. There's too many people like it, you know, and, and, and that would be great for the Halipu Mi'kmaq First Nation because it would provide additional. And, and, and this First Nation out here is the finances of it are impeccable, like unbelievably impeccable. They get star ratings and uh, the leadership of the band here, uh, Chief Brendan Mitchell, who is a close personal friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, now is performing a national uh, leadership roles at a national level in indigenous groups. So, okay, Terry, I unfortunately have to leave it there, but I appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Patty. Thanks, Terry. All the best. Okay, let's take that break. When we come back, Barry Pettin's in the queue. He's the PC member for CBS. He's the critic in the education portfolio. Then we'll talk about the climate action rally that's upcoming, electronic voting, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the uh, progressive conservative member for CBS. He's the critic for education. That's Barry Penn. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? Good, right, good. Yeah. Patty, I just want to quickly first start. Just, uh, I also want to send along uh, condolences to the families of Florida Lee. You know, the ocean has bought us a lot in this province over the years. We all know for hundreds of years, but it's it's also cost us a lot too. So, uh, our condolences to the families out there, and uh, I'm sure everyone everyone across the province feels that uh, we always feel that shock when we hear those stories. So, uh, sad day for sure. It is. Uh, Patty, uh, I wanted to uh, talk, last week was a bit of media play, I uh, come out actually speaking about this most recent, uh, it's in the courts there now, a uh, substitute teacher that was charged with sexless exploitation, whatever you know, now the charges as of yesterday, uh, I think it's 50 charges now, and uh, it's been, I mean, I've had a lot of follow-up, I mean, in my role as education critic, a lot of parents and teachers reach out to me regularly, and, and which is which is part of the course. Uh, but it's, it's alarming lately, and I, I tell you, I'm getting concerned. Staff are, staff are concerned for safety. Staff, teachers are concerned for safety. Par- students are concerned, and obviously I'm hearing from parents. And, you know, I heard you earlier in one of your calls there, and you said we're not no longer. People think we're, you know, a little small province, small town mentality. And things don't happen here. They happen in Ontario. They happen in other places. But 
we have to, I guess, and it's not a fear mongering, it's a reality check. Uh, we have to face those issues and face them head on because I'm hearing horrendous stories, Patty, and I mean, some of them are not public and some of them, I guess, is up to the families or whatever, whatever, they're guaranteed involved and whatever. You know, there's bullying, there's swarming, there's, you know, there's uh, violence. I mean, I've got a picture last night that's horrendous. I've heard another story, I don't know if they're going to come out with it or not, and it may, it may make the media eventually, that's up to, again, that's not my call, but what really concerns me is when I'm hearing from these parents one after another, I'm hearing, I'm hearing sexual cases and they, just, they feel the school board are not helping them, the school is not helping them. It's the list goes on. And, I mean, I guess one thing jumps out at me, too, you know, and I've, I spoke with this last week, and it's lots of, you know, it's lots of issues. I mean, the minister, and, I mean, Mr. Hollis put out a couple of uh, memos, and I mean, he responded to me last week. And even the premier, these issues need need that attention. And I, again, I don't want to think it's not about it's not about fear mongering. It's something that has, has caused me a great deal. I mean, as I as concerned, I'm always critical, petty. I mean, as an individual, I mean, I got a we're we're expecting our first grandson now next to, in November. And I mean, I think about him, and he's, he'll be going to school another before we know it. I'm, you know, and. That's concerning. That like that's concerning to me as an individual. You know, and my children are through school now, but like here I am facing with grandchildren, and anyone out there listening, these are serious concerns, and we just can't. I guess I find that it's not really the right attention being paid. And I know there's no magic. There's not a magic pill to solve this issue, but we got to start talking. If we don't start talking about this and making, you know, bring bringing it to light, trying to deal with it, trying to deal with it head on in the schools, in the public domain, parents talking about it. This is how things start. We start to find solutions. And I mean, we we had the PwC attack last year, and I mean that was kind of like on the, we were trying to struggle to get information on that. And, I mean, and the former minister kind of was like downplaying to a degree, and I mean, which took I took offence at the time, but I mean, what about safety audits for the schools? Some schools are equipped with cameras in every hallway, outside, inside. Other schools are lucky if they had a buzzer like in. Uh, you know, we, I mentioned last week the safe and caring school policy. I haven't been updated since 2013. Now, Mr. Hall said after that that they were reviewing it, so I don't know when that review started. And there's one thing out there, too, to deal directly with this most recent charge that's uh, in the courts now. It's kids in the know program. I met with uh, Bev Moore Davis and a group of uh, Malls for Smalls. I met with Minister Howell and I discussed it. And Minister Howell was open to the idea, concept, they were going to bring in a phased in approach and what have you. But I don't get that because I don't think it's a huge cost. But I'll take a word from the Premier and I'll stop there. The Premier said, you can't. Safety of a child is paramount. You can't put price on the safety of a child. Sure. A couple of things, sir. So the phased-in approach, I mean, for starters, I don't really get it. They talked about an overall price tag for full-on implementation around $25,000. It's a boilerplate that's already available. It's test-driven for age appropriateness and all the rest of it. And, you know, then the thought was, well, we we need time to train the teachers to deliver it. There's a full suite of professional development days. Certainly, if we're talking about priorities, one of those days could be for exactly this. So on that front backtracking a little bit words are important you know how we reference what goes on in schools because being teased about your freckles or your mother wears army boots or knocking the books out of your hands is teasing and bullying acts of violence are exactly that it's not bullying if someone beats you you get swarmed and beat to a pulp that is not a form of bullying so we got to kind of stop using that word for a catch-all for everything that goes on in school because if we don't bullying comes across as quite innocuous these days right you wear a pink shirt try to be kind to each other other empathetic and what have you, but that has nothing but nothing to do with someone punching you in the face. 
No, absolutely, Patty. And I've gotten some pictures, and uh, I mean, and I and it, there's not a player. Now I'll answer. It affects me. It, it, it bothers me. It upsets me. It makes me angry, and it frustrates me as well because. You know, we're all adults, and we're all, you know, put politics aside, put all that foolishness aside. You've got a serious issue, and I, and I don't say this easily, lightly or I mean, they're our most valuable resource we got our children. Our, they're our lives, every one of us, every parent out there, every grandparent out there, that's your life. And when you see things happening, and I'm hearing this not from my own schools in CBS, Patty, I'm hearing this right across. And it's alarming. As a lady supposed to reach out to me in a week, her daughter has been tortured, sexually bullied, you name it. And she wants to speak to me directly, and I, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm open to that. But I mean, these stories are not out there yet, you know. And will they come out? I don't know. That's not my call. But my, my role, and my role right now as you know, education critic, is I have, I have that obligation to bring this stuff to light. And whether it be to your, to your show or any media outlet, we have to start talking about this. And we keep our head in the sand, and we let pretend this is not happening. And wear a pink shirt once a year, and have signs up all over the school, and we're providing this and telling everyone. You got a safe environment, and everything is good. Go home, everything is good. We're going to talk to your children. Make sure you talk to them about this. Make sure you talk to them about that. That's not the answer, Patty. Unfortunately, that's not the answer. Obviously, it's not working. We're seeing we're seeing evidence of that now. And if we don't nip this now, if we don't get control of this now, because this has been. This has been creeping into our school system for quite some time now, over the last number of years. And I've heard, we've all heard these antidote stories, we've all, and the schools put a crackdown to hazing and what have you. But these things have gone past all that. Like you said, knocking the books out of your hands. I went to school, I mean, 40 years ago when I graduated. So, I mean, I, we, you know, there was lots of bullying going on back then. There was some violence, but nothing. I mean, nothing to us now. I mean, I mean, another issue was the, the vape pens are in the school. Parents are reaching out to me on that this week, and shatter pens are called, and they're running rampant up in one of my one of the schools in my district, and they're looking to call for action to send emails to me and the principals in the district. So this is just, an, I mean, schools schools issues come up. We we deal with that yearly. That's always an issue. And there's always sensitive issues, but the level of what I'm hearing lately, Patty, is time for us to start talking about. It. And I, I mean, I, I encourage the minister and the premier should also. I mean, he's he takes part in a lot of announcements these days, and good on him. But I mean, maybe he needs to, uh, uh, you know, share his views too, because this is concerning. Too. It shouldn't it should only be just concerning to me. It should be concerning to each and every one of us. Well, and it is. Uh, I would add to it very quickly before I have to go. Is safety online is just such a complicated world, and we can't boil it down to simple conversations. We'll cure all these ills because they won't. But it's a good starting point. In addition to that, safety inside the doors and the walls of the schools and the the protocols that are in place are working. But outside in the playground and then in the parking lot where we don't really have much in the way of control and we've seen what's happened, the stories of, you know, just steps away from the school grounds where the students of the school are involved in acts of violence, whether it be PWC last year, there's got to be a better way to patrol and to monitor the school grounds, not just what happens in the school. You have to start there, obviously, but the school grounds are bigger than simply the classroom, the cafeteria and the science lab. Uh, I appreciate the time, Barry. I'll give you the last word here quickly before I have to go. I know, Patty. As always, I appreciate your time, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I think we need to, uh, like I said, we need to protect the most, uh, you know, valuable resource we got. And it's proper safety out in all of our schools, I think, will go a long ways to helping some of that outside school. Like I say, inside is not so bad, but outside is most important. But once again, thanks for your time, and talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Take care, Barry. Okay, buddy. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Barry Petten is the PC member for CBS. To try to stay uh, stay on track here with the breaks, Erin, you stay right there. She wants to talk about Fridays for Future. Paul Walsh is with the Autism Society. Newfoundland and Labrador, and then Tom wants to talk about what he sees in and around where he works. Don't go away.
Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Aaron Lee. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Um, so I'm calling in today to just let your audience know about the upcoming student-led climate strike that's happening this Friday at 1 p.m. at the Munn Clock Tower. Yeah, we had John Harrison, the external director at Munsu, about this issue yesterday. So as one of the co-organizers, I mean, this is a global conversation, but let's bring it back to home. What about what's happening in this province, public policy, industry or otherwise, is a top-of-the-mind concerns for you and your colleagues, your, your friends, pardon me. Yeah, for sure. So the theme of the Global Day of Action is called Global Fight to End Fossil Fuel. But like you said, we tailored it to our own specific asks here for Newfoundland and Labrador. So I'll just read those out. So our number one is a rapid and equitable phase out of fossil fuels in this province, especially the termination of the Bay Nord project. And then number two is a massive investment in community-owned renewable projects centering Indigenous communities. And then number three is for Memorial University to divest from accepting money from fossil fuel sectors. So all of these are in alignment with Canada's commitment to reach uh, net zero emissions by 2050. So what's the protest going to look like? Because some of those issues, I mean, when we talk about full divestment in fossil fuels, you know, even Equinor with their green light hasn't yet proceeded with the project, shelved it for a few years. There's, you know, limited exploration happening in the last couple of years. When people say, well, how about this? You know, how about a dose of what someone might call reality? And I'm not trying to be controversial or uh, to engage in some sort of racket here. But when people talk, you know, it's hard to replace a billion dollars in revenue. It's hard to replace the direct and indirect jobs associated with fossil fuels overnight. A transition is exactly that. It's not a flip of a switch. What do you say when someone says, you know, a just transition takes time. It can't be done overnight because there's ongoing production offshore that the government can't even say, well, you have to stop now because they have a contract. So what do you say to that transition? No, totally. I totally agree with you. It's not going to happen overnight. And we realize that we're not totally saying overnight. But what we are saying is that we want to hear more in the mainstream media and to hear our institutions and our leaders talking about starting that investment rather than continuing these um, explorations for more more oil projects. So totally, like you said, it's going to take time, but we're just trying to create more awareness, have more education, and have people coming out to the streets to make sure that that just transition does happen. And um, for sure, the movement has definitely grown over the years, so we're really excited for that, and we're hoping for a really good turnout um, this Friday, which in fact will also kind of continue that pressuring of, okay, we're saying that we will start this transition, but we need to make sure it happens. Fair enough. So what does transition look like? Because there is going to be the need for energy. Energy comes in many varieties, and there's no such thing as actually pure green energy in this world. Even when a solar panel or a wind turbine or a tidal wave capture or hydrogen or natural gas all comes with a footprint. When you talk about greener, because that's all it really is, what does that include? Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, 
wind energy, geothermal energy, hydropower, all of those, like you said, they aren't going to be fully clean, but they are obviously a cleaner solution than fossil fuels. So I wish I had the exact answers for all of these technologies, obviously still developing, but seeing a higher investment put into those new developments and implementing them sooner than later is definitely what we're looking for. Give the folks the details one more time. The Where are the winds? Sure. So this Friday, uh, 1 p.m. at the Mung Clock Tower, we're going to be walking up to the Confederation Building. It's going to be about an hour and a half event with speeches, performances, and, yeah, it's a family-friendly event, so bring out the entire family. I appreciate your time, Erin. Good luck with it. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. The Sarah Lee co-organizer for Fridays with uh, Fridays for Future. Uh, where to now, Dave? I'm sorry. I lost track of the time. Line number, uh, Bev? Okay, let's go to line number four. Good morning, Bev Moore Davis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? I'm good. Thank you. I just wanted to um, have a quick conversation with you about what's going on now before the courts, the school teacher that's uh, up on those sexual abuse charges and disturbing, disturbing as that is. Uh, unfortunately, we're, you know, we're hearing about these cases. Um, this one is um, because it's a teacher and it's uh, so many people involved. Uh, it's playing out. But um, every provincial court right now this month has sexual abuse crimes against children in there. So I just wanted to say that, uh, tell you that I, I, I read with the Canadian Center for Child Protection that they released a study that between 2017 and 22, they had 252 charges that are former school personnel or current accused of sexual abuse crimes against children, plus an additional 38 that were criminally charged. So for that five-year period, that's 290 charges. 74% are coaches. Um, I mean, these numbers are going to continue. And as you know, we're still fighting for the body safety program. So something that I did want to mention to you and your listeners is um, the Canadian Centre also has a online program that teachers can do. It is a three-hour program, and it costs twelve dollars. And it um, it's called Commit to Kids. The program it will address issues such as grooming, um, handling disclosures, the impact of child abuse, things like that. Things that you know teachers want to be trained in. Um, they can go online and do this themselves at their own convenience. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up and uh, let people know about it. And so when we talk about training, because these are some issues where it would be received and understood very differently between child to child. So how extensive is the training? Because it's easy enough to say, here's the curriculum or here's the program, here's the intended outcomes, because that's how curriculum is designed, right? They say, here's what you deliver and here are the uh, the achievables, here are the outcomes that we're hoping to uh, reach in this particular program. But some people, like for instance, if you're teaching uh, math or English or science, you would have had a keen focus focus on that in your training in university, for instance. So how does this training look? How comprehensive is it? Unfortunately, there is nothing in the curriculum right now. When, when teachers are going through their training, they're not getting this training. 
We've already identified that. Uh, but this particular program, Kids in the Know, the Canadian Centre for Child Protection will train teachers. They have, as we've talked about, their, their PLDs, that they will come in and teach the teachers so that they know what they're doing. They also have the supports available so that if teachers have questions throughout the year, they're there to guide them through. If if uh, NLESD and Department of Education wanted to implement this program mid-year, mid-year, the Canadian Centre would ensure that it was a smooth transition. So the support is there to get this program up and running. Um, unfortunately, it's just not happening as quickly as we need it to happen. And I say need, not want. It's, it's now a need. And, and when we listen to the, the stories in the media or we read the car dockets, the need is there. Sure. I guess my question was the kind of training for delivery of the program you're talking about, not what they don't get in school already for training of teachers, because, again, it's complex issues, and, you know, they would have spent a lot of time in post-secondary focusing in on key areas like English and science and mathematics or what have you. So what kind of training to deliver the program you're promoting? Um, I would have to go in and look a little bit deeper into it, Patty, to be able to answer that question for you. Um, I mean, I know that they deal with the issues that right now we're talking about, the online uh, internet problems. Those are addressed. Uh, Everything is age appropriately, uh, you know, delivered to the child. Um, But I, I wouldn't be able to answer that question right now. I'd need to do a little bit deeper dive myself. Uh, no worries. I didn't mean to put you on the spot because, you know, we talk about these programs, but of course, teachers of different ages and different life experience and understanding that every child will see and acknowledge and understand the risks differently makes this kind of training critically important. It's one thing to have the curriculum in front of the child that can read it and touch it and for the teacher to be able to deliver the talking points, but understanding how that is being received and understood is also a big part of it because you can't really test on this stuff, right? We don't even test in some of the traditional traditional three hours in school like we used to so I, I was just curious how this would be you know the type of training maybe the people who have devised or designed this program might be interesting to have them on so that we can dig a little deeper into you know not we all know what the intended outcomes are but how people are brought up to speed so they can be delivering this program as intended that's all I was trying to get out there but I'll reach out to that group or maybe you can provide me with some contact information for them and I'll do that bit of follow-up Absolutely. In fact, I sent a message off to the uh, executive director yesterday um, and and posed that question if they would be interested in talking with local media, because I think it would be quite beneficial to get directly from them. They can answer the questions. They know the program inside and out, the outcomes and, and everything else. So I, I will I'll work on that, Patty, and see what I can do for you. I appreciate the time this morning, Bevan. Please do indeed put me on to whoever can come on the show if they're so uh, if they're so inclined, and we can dig down a little deeper. Sounds good. Thank uh, you. Thanks, Bev. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, Paul, Paul Walsh, appreciate your patience. You're up next to talk about the upcoming AGM and other issues regarding uh, folks on the autism spectrum. Maybe touch base on what's happening in schools, what we're hearing, and whatever else Paul Walsh, Paul Walsh wants to talk about after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the CEO at the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Paul Walsh. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thanks for the opportunity to speak with your listeners. Happy to do so. Let's go ahead and give the information about the upcoming AGM and some agenda items, then we'll move on to some other broad topics. 
Absolutely. Saturday's a big day for us, our annual AGM, two, well, I guess, annual, annual general meeting, uh, 2023 AGM. It begins at 10 o'clock. It's being held at our, at our spectacular greenhouse here at ASNL. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the formal part of the AGM runs from 10 to 11, and we also have a town hall, which is a commitment our board made in terms of engagement with our community, going from 11.30 to 1.30. It's both in-person and virtual, and if anyone wants to attend virtually, they can send us an email at info at asnl.ca, and we will make sure that they get the link so that they can participate. What's on the agenda? Um, the agenda for the AGM is pretty uh, much governed by legislation. Sure. So it's you know reports from the chair of the board, myself, um, the uh, auditors, and things like that. I think the town hall is really where the the main engagement happens because it's sure. where we get to hear from the community. The community can speak directly to the board members and to me as CEO, and to ask questions and to put forth their their uh, feelings on where our organization should move. We are very much committed to elevating and centering the voice of the autistic community in Newfoundland and Labrador. And as such, what we do is driven by what we hear and what we're told by that community and, and under the principle of nothing about us without us. So uh, those two hours are really critical. And it represents the third town hall this year that ASNL will host after holding ones in Cornerbrook and Stephenville in April. I've been doing some work with your group for a long, long time now. Yes, you have. And talking about these issues as much as we can, maybe not even enough. But to me, I find and you can, of course, you're working on this, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. There's still a lot of distinct misunderstanding about autism. You know, I always go back to the one phrase. When you've met one person with autism, you've met exactly that, one person with autism, because the spectrum is wide and broad and it's complex. Where do you think are some of the most general or common misperceptions or misconceptions about the spectrum? Well, I think it really goes back to the concept of understanding autism as a natural part of diversity and not as a health condition or something of that nature. So uh, the, the neurodevelopment of, of an autistic individual is different from what we may have understood in, in other people. So it's important, just like we understand and appreciate the diversity in cultures of all kinds, to for society to realize that we, that different, different individuals uh, will react differently in different situations. Uh, you know, there's a, over time, you know, I think the society has um, moved forth in understanding that, uh, you know, autism is a just that, just a, a natural development, and people develop at different levels. Um, I was in a session yesterday with Accessibility Standards Canada, one of the other presenters, and talking generally about disability, talks about our optimism for the future because it's the youth of this province, the children in the schools in this province that really truly get inclusion and diversity. And so that's great, but we as a society just need to understand that people develop differently, that we always presume full competence of the individual, and that we understand that just because it's different than how we behave doesn't mean it's wrong. A hundred percent. I mean, the, the the spectrum itself, as I mentioned, is really quite broad. Uh, inside schools, some children on the spectrum may indeed need some additional support. Some right. may need to have a quiet space for sensory overloads. Right. Some may be all the way to nonverbal. So the problem that we see, unfortunately, year over years, some children, not just uh, on the spectrum, but some children that need additional supports, and the school knows because they needed it last year, things didn't change over the summer, then they come back, and lo and behold, the supports might not be in place, and then you get off to a sluggish start. What are we seeing this September? 
Um, not a whole lot different, Patty. We've had, uh, you know, correspondence from, from parents and uh, from across the province that, you know, you know the the, uh, the resourcing for student assistance is a little slow in developing and whatnot. Um, busing is always a, a, um, a concern. So we've been working with the Department of Education and with the Newfoundland Labrador English School District to identify specific situations and so that they can be addressed. And, and I have to say both groups are very, very uh, cooperative with us and when a situation occurs uh, that uh, they react very quickly to, to address that and to work directly with the parents. But, uh, yeah, it's, it is it is frustrating, certainly, for parents that, you know, yes, my, my child uh, in school needed a student assistant last year. As you said, the situation is not going to change next year, yet we're still going through the process of putting the, student, the assistance in place and ensuring the consistency of the assistant um, one day over the next, which is very important. Uh, and, and just overall, and not only for our population, but certainly for uh, for all members of the school school uh, population, ensuring the inclusion of all students and the right their rights to an education. Let's talk about diagnosis because you know when I was younger, someone was off, not autistic. We didn't have formal diagnosis in place. So now when the numbers have grown, people have questions about, well, my goodness, when I was younger, there was nowhere near this percentage of the population that has been diagnosed with autism. Talk about diagnosis and then early diagnosis and what it means for things like access to speech therapy and those types of supports. Well, certainly, I think diagnosis of any uh, disability, any health condition or whatnot is one of the most freeing things that happens for people because it answers a lot of questions. Okay, now I know, A, what's going on, and B, what I need to do. Um, early in, early diagnosis is important. You know, through the uh, pandemic, the, there were, you know, delays in everything uh, to do with, uh, with society and the diagnosis of, uh, of autism for children especially is, is no exception. Um, but the uh, you're right. You know, uh, you know when when you and I were in school, um, you know we didn't hear about this, but it still existed. We just called it something different. We always and we didn't always call it something very nice to be blunt. Right. Um, so uh, you know, as diagnosis has improved and and the the instance of diagnosis has become more common, you're obviously going to see it happen more more frequently. What I think is really interesting now is that adults our age, Patty are seeing this in their children or their grandchildren are seeing a diagnosis and they're going, yeah, hang on. Yeah, that sounds kind of like me. And now we're getting adults being diagnosed later in life. And that creates uh, a situation where as a province uh, and as a society, we have to look at services for adults, which before we really focused on services for children. So, um, you know, it's not that the incidence of autism has suddenly you know, gone up. It's that we are thankfully identifying it and identifying the uh, the ability to help people more quickly. Yeah, I mean, we've seen an increase in uh, adults being diagnosed with ADHD because techniques have changed, self-awareness has changed, those types of issues. When we talk about a late diagnosis, uh, what, what does your organization do, not only for support groups on that front, but things like employment? Because it becomes a different kintle of fish when you all of a sudden have an official diagnosis of yep. one thing or another. So what does employment look like for adults with autism, and what does your organization do in, insofar as support goes? Well, first of all, we don't require a formal diagnosis for anyone to participate in our Fair. programs. But so we have a number of, of, of employment-related uh, programs and programs for employment preparation, uh, three come to mind would be our transitions program which is a year-long program our um, students uh, students transitioning to employment post-secondary or step program 
and the uh, full-blown uh, employment works program, so that which involves partnering with businesses to give people actual job experience. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, not only in us, but the disability community in general. Uh, underemployment is a huge problem. Unemployment is a huge problem. And in reality, the disability community is sitting there as a big solution to the labor shortages we see right now. But employers have to be open to the fact that, okay, the situation might look different. Not going to be more expensive, not going to be more challenging, just different. And so, for example, if you think about something like the IT industry, there are brilliant folks out there waiting to work in that wonderful industry, but their work situation might be more remote than it is in the in the office, for example. And that's just one example. Um, but certainly uh, the programming here around employment and other groups uh, in, in society that support employment development, uh, big focus for those transitioning out of school and adults in general. Uh, last one before I get the details on the AGM one more time. How different should we be understanding and talking about, you know, family support versus is very focused support for the siblings of a child on the spectrum because children can be mean sometimes simply based on ignorance or not understanding yes. what we're talking about so how different is the conversation when we talk about you know the uh, young autistic child their brother and sister how they should understand the diagnosis how they interact with others because basically children can be sometimes unkind so how does that conversation differ from you know adult support or family support uh, it, it doesn't differ greatly it's simply a question we have uh, dedicated uh, support groups and meeting groups for siblings, as we do for parents, as we do for adults, as we do for individ autistic individuals. Um, the conversation is about understanding uh, and awareness. Uh, we, I, I like to think we're way past the whole concept that we used to talk about acceptance. I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume we're way past that I think you're because, right. because we have to be. So we do a lot of work with, with those kinds of support groups and in schools, talking directly to staff and faculty as well as to students about the concept of understanding and awareness. So the conversations aren't different. They're just more tailored to, if I'm talking to a sibling, to how they feel. And it's important to also understand how the individual feels. Absolutely. Before I let you go, Paul, give us the details one more time. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Saturday um, uh, on the 16th, beginning at 10 a.m. in the ASNL Greenhouse is our annual general meeting. It runs till about 11. Be a short break. And then from 1130 to 130 is a uh, open public town hall. Our, our board of directors will be present as well as, um, as uh, the majority of our staff uh, for anyone to bring up any, any topic at all. And we want to hear from that from the community broadly and again it's available both remotely and in person so if anyone would like to attend via zoom you can send an email to info at asnl.ca and we will get the link out to them paul is it helpful or ridiculous if we talk about notable or famous people who are on the spectrum and the contributions they've made so that people understand that, you know, it's not all about being odd or bad or whatever it is, you know, because there's some extraordinary people out there, for instance, with Asperger's. Um, cer certainly. I mean, there's no harm in that. I think it's important that we understand that we're, we are sure that the individual was indeed autistic because there's a lot of pe people will jump and say, oh, you know, so-and-so is autistic and that may or may not be true. Um, but I think I think we look, have to look close to home and just realize that there's lots of individuals who identify as autistic who are making wonderful contributions to the society and life here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, it's not about hero worship. No, no. And it's not about being exceptional. It's not about being, you know, um, 
uh, anything of that nature. It's about individuals living their lives just like everybody else and contributing to society. And, and I think that, you know, nobody, nobody wants to be an inspiration. Nobody needs an inspiration. We just, you know, individuals with disabilities generally just need to be recognized for the value they, they deliver. Here, here. And uh, that's why I asked because I really didn't know how to treat that thought. Yeah. Uh, good to have you on, Paul. Appreciate the time. Uh, always a pleasure, Patty, and thank you for the opportunity. Anytime. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Paul Bye. Walsh, CEO at the Autism Society. Let's take a break for the news. Ted, you're next to talk about electronic voting. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just on a traffic note, there's been reports of a big accident, CBS around Manuel's River, fire trucks on site and what have you, so avoid if possible. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Ted. You're on the air. <laughs> Excuse me. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, yeah, it's not a bad day. I, uh, I just want to take about 30 seconds of my time before I speak on electronic voting, okay? Yep. Uh, thanks to your program once again. When I went down to the coffee shop this morning, a couple of the boys came in and heard your interview a couple of days ago with the young uh, grandson of the captain of the Kyle, right? He's the captain I, of the Caribou as well. Yeah, 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 and I'm telling you, and you know, now you could probably understand why I say when I'm fascinated. It's not the, the ship, the structure, the ship itself, it's the history. And I'd like to, I don't know if they brought this up or not, but also informed this morning that when the Kyle brought back the uh, Old Glory, the wing of the Old Glory, yeah. she docked in Bay Roberts. And I did not know that, sir. And uh, I, 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 uh, they said if she was put in a hangar, well, that was uh, probably some building, because I don't think we had any hangars you're usually referring to, like airports or something like that. But I think it was at the government wharf in Bay Roberts. But I will follow up on that, because I... I'm just fascinated with the story, and I, I don't want to use up too much of my time on this issue because I want to speak on electronic voting. No problem, but I have a quick question for you. So the caller, his name was Lauren Tavener. His grandfather was Benjamin Tavener, a commander of both the Kyle and the Caribou, and his two uncles, Stanley and Harold, who were also lost in the sinking of the ship. He did have a specific question for you, Ted. You say you had this big picture of the Caribou. He said the biggest one he's seen or that he has is 10 by 12. How big is the one you have? I'm not very good on size. I think mine is 10 by 12. That's 10 inches by 12. Is that what you're saying? That's right. About the size of a sheet of loose leaf paper. Mine is... Uh, oh, mine, I can look at it now because I got it on the back of my, just on my couch. I'm ready for, for my friend Wayne George to come over to get, a, get the framing done on that. Uh, right off the bat, I'd say this one is probably... Uh, oh, probably 18 by... Uh, 18 across by probably 10 or 12 down. Okay. okay. Yeah, I just wanted to get that info in case Lauren is listening again this morning. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, and uh, but I, uh, you know, it's it's so interesting to know, you know, like that I drive in Bear Roberts Plus. Uh, that morning when I was talking to you, I was, I'm usually usually pretty sharp, right? But I was uh, Randolph Hearst. That was the name of the uh, the media uh, down in New York. That's the He's a, what, what do you call him, a media mongol, okay? Because remember years later, his granddaughter, Patty, was it Patty Hurst, got tangled up with the PLQ. I get mixed up PLQ and FLQ. But anyway, <laughs> I'll go on electronic voting. Okay. But thanks again, Patty, because 
you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I go down at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and the boys, they're, they're listening to your show. A lot of them are listening, right? And, uh, and they give me good information. Now, last couple of years, I haven't paid much attention to the political scene, but probably since the le- uh, leadership of the last election, right? And, but for years, on your program, I was dead set against this, what you call electronic, is it voting? Is that the right term? Absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of different ways. You know, we've seen political parties engage in electronic voting for voting for leadership, for instance, but we have not seen it in general elections. Okay. All right. So that's good. So that's going to bring up what I'm trying to say here. Because I was used to the old style, you know, going out and getting the delegates and the man, oh man, I, I, I was to some good ones, right? But that's not the point. The point I'm making here is this. I can see... Uh, I've sort of I've changed my mind completely, and I think it's essential right now, especially in and I knew I have a leadership race going on, by the way, in this province, one of our major parties, right? But today, it's almost it's too costly to you know to run the. Uh, leadership conventions like we had years ago, like where you had to elect delegates, right, and bring them in, uh, you know, put them up in the hotel where you couldn't pay your way, you hopefully uh, you'd raise enough money to get in there. So I see the advantage here uh, that way. But what I would like to bring to the attention of the three particular candidates, it's probably too late now because the registration for is over, right? You had to uh, register up to a certain date. Yeah, that's long past us. So we're talking about the PC party and the three candidates. Uh, Lloyd Parrott was first in, and then uh, Tony Wakeham and Eugene Manning. Yes, and that's and all, what I'm saying here, uh, maybe they'll take this into the future. But I'm concerned here on that, and I speak as a senior citizen, right? I'm, you know, I'll be 85 next month, okay? And all my life, as a boy, I've been sort of what you call a political animal, right? My father was the same way. But I'm concerned is how many seniors didn't get the opportunity to vote in this leadership. Now, not every senior got a computer, but I hope and pray that the candidates, and it's tough to get, uh, uh, you know, volunteers, I hope the three candidates have had people working, you know, on their, on their um, leadership campaign that have taken the time, especially in their own districts, uh, well, in any district, right, and made sure that assistance was provided in order to get some of these elderly people to vote. That's one of the concerns I have. I, I had that during the, uh, uh, during the liberal leadership race, and I st- that's the thing that concerns me, like, as a senior. But in the meantime, I just want to uh, ask you this. When is the debate? Is that sometime this week? Uh, it's not over with, is it, Between the, on, N- on NTV, I think, with the three candidates? Yeah, not to my knowledge. Uh, I don't know that it's taken place uh, as of yet. We were trying to figure out whether or not we could do something here. But insofar as a candidate helping a senior wherever they've campaigned or canvassed, I would imagine if I'm a candidate and I knock on the door and I understand the voting process and someone says, well, I can't do it. If I'm a candidate, I'm saying, well, here's where you can do it. And here's who can help you with it. And not to say, well, because you have to vote for me or have to do anything under the sun, because there's places in the community where people can use someone's use a computer and engage. Now, whether or not they all took that on. 
I'd be surprised if they didn't because they're looking for every vote they can possibly get because <laughs> whoever gets the most votes wins. But I can't speak to the particulars on behalf of those candidates. No, and I can't either. But I, I, I think you, I think you're getting what, what I'm saying here. Uh, uh, hopefully. Hopefully that the candidates have people working for them. Right? It's a job to get people to work for you, and it's a tough job. I compliment the three people that are running. I mean, it's, a, it's not an easy job today to step out and run and try to become leader of, a, of our, uh, one of our uh, major parties here in the province. You know, it, it's a tough job, and the sacrifice, you know, to everybody, you know, everybody that's involved. I... Uh, I don't know if I could add much else to it. Right? Oh, yeah, one more thing I was going to bring up is this. I've got to say this in all honesty. In the past year or so, like, like I'm on the go. You know what I mean? I'm early in the morning, but then I'm back. i got things to do, and I, I, I speak with a lot of people, and I, you know, different places. But I have not heard, first time in my life, with, a major, with, a, with an election going on here of a major party in our province, I have not heard... That topic being brought up to me personally in public. Now, being such a political animal I have over the years, sometimes people say, Ted, who's going to win the leadership? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? But I think the uh, getting back to the article there that Morgan there, that man Morgan had in the shoreline there, I looked at that article there about two weeks ago, right? And he thought about a no spark or no drowsy, right? But in my own opinion, this is my own opinion, uh, our people in this province are more tuned in, and I'm not, but, uh, but they're more tuned in to what's going on in the United States, to, to Fox and what's the other one, CNN, right? And I think it's a major, major mistake on, on our people. And I, and I speak all our people that we're not paying more attention to what's going on with our, in our own province. Now, that's my views on Patty, and that's... Uh, you might be right. I purposefully have gotten away from talking about uh, American politics. I don't watch cable news any longer. I just can't handle it. Uh, so I pay strict attention to the province and the country, but I know you're right. American politics is just so bizarre that it's like a, a car wreck or a train wreck. You can't look away. So once you get, you know, intrigued by one storyline or another, it's hard to escape it because that cable news, man, is just all-consuming if you let it be. I know some people, they get up in the morning, they flick it on, it's on all day. That's all they watch. They might, you know, take a break in the afternoon to watch their story or maybe Jeopardy or something, but other than that, it's all day long cable news. And the spin masters that are, you know, representing, whether it be the MSNBCs or the Foxes or the CNNs or Bloombergs or anything else, they, they're so manipulative that it's just hard to decipher what's up, what's down, what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's a lie. So it, it's an amazing business. We've gotten away from news and it's entertainment, right? And uh, that's not been, that's proven not to be very helpful either. Uh, Ted, anything else before I have to take yes, a break? okay, I'm glad you said anything else because I didn't want to hug your program, okay? No problem. Uh, uh, and I, I won't go into a story, and you'll see what me as a story, but I go back a long time. But uh, this one might surprise you. I remember years ago going into my, uh, my, my father came from St. John's, right? My mother came by Roberts, right? But I remember going in there, I think it was in the 50s, I went to, um, uh, my relatives there, and I went to a soccer game. And the first time I ever seen organized soccer, and believe it or not, the team 
that was playing, I, I'm not sure. I, I know the team was Holy Cross, right? And I think you're familiar with Holy Cross, or, if sure. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a, a, a man that I know, never met him, but I've spoken to him uh, several times. I followed his career a bit years ago. And as a matter of fact, I spoke to him privately recently. Uh, he's probably younger. Uh, he's, no, you're, you might be too young to remember, right? But he was a counselor at one time in St. John's. He was a member there in St. John's Center, and at the time he got defeated there in St. John's Center, Center was a political, to me, a very uh, big political upset. I'm talking about Sean Skinner. I'm not sure if you remember him or if you know him, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, he was one time uh, Minister of Natural Resources amongst other portfolios. I know, Sean. Uh, before we run out of time here, the reference to Holy Cross, uh, they were the 1998 National Challenge Cup champions. We had Danny Reardon on to promote their upcoming reunion, and consequently they sent me in a beautiful red mug uh, with representing the 88 uh, Challenge Cup Championship, which I thought was pretty great. Uh, I've, and oh, for your information, Ted, the NTV debate between the three uh, candidates for the PC leadership is September 24th. September 24th of this month? Yeah. Okay, and I, what night is that? I said a Monday, Tuesday, well, that doesn't matter. I'll, I'll find that out anyway, okay? But, you know, I, uh, I, uh, like I said, I don't follow the political scene like I used to, but I still, you know, I still try to keep up on things. But you were mentioning American stations, but one station I do watch every day around 11.30, I go down to a American friend of mine, there is another gentleman, right? And I go there to get an update on the stock market and stuff like that. And the station that really, really keeps me up to date is a station called Newsmax. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's not a good one. Just in my own personal opinion. I, I appreciate the time. And what's, uh, September 24th is a Saturday night. Uh, yeah. Did you play hockey with Holy Cross? No, I was a Celtic. Oh, God, yeah, Brother Rice, yeah, okay. Yeah. But anyway, if you ever run into uh, Sean Skinner, and he's got a very impressive by the, uh, son, by the way, and I think he said it's going to be a name to watch in the either in the municipal scene in St. John's or the provincial scene. He's got a son by the name of Shane. Shane, yeah, Shane Skinner. Yeah, I'm familiar with him. And he's the president right now, only a young man. I don't, I don't, I'm looking forward to meeting him. I know a little bit about him. He's president of the PC party in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's right. Yeah. And okay. Eugene Manning used to be. I uh, appreciate the time, Chad. I'm off to oh, the yeah. break. I like Eugene. I, I've said that. I met Eugene. Very fine gentleman, okay? But to be fair, the other candidates, I'm not going to predict who I think is going to win or who, who I want to win or things like that. But Eugene Manning is a very fine man. No question in my mind. Thanks, Thank Ted. You. Thank you, sir. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, Miles is there to talk about the Climate Action Rally. Uh, there was a caller on the queue wanted to respond to what we were talking about with Paul Walsh at the Autism Society. If you're still there, we'd welcome that call too because there's, there's a lot to discuss on that front and if you're in the St. John's metro region I'd like to join us live on the program this morning to talk about something you've heard here or bring up a new topic which we always welcome 709-273-5211 elsewhere it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 we're taking a break and then we're coming back welcome back to the show let's go to line number four good morning caller you're on the air good morning line number four caller you're on the air hello hi how are you okay how about you I'm good. Uh, I'm just talking. I was listening to your uh, thing about the autism to the program this morning. Yep. My son just finished an autism, um, uh, like, um, went to a trade. Uh, and the autism society spotted him, right? Okay. 
so my question is, does nothing come about afterwards? Like he's over 30 years old, and he's had to put out resumes everywhere, and there's nothing coming back. So there is a... Oh. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry? No, there is a gap in services for a lot of folks once they clear a yeah. certain age. So uh, do you have direct contact with the Autism Society? Yeah, well, I don't, but he do. Okay. So maybe you can get ask him to connect with me so that I can make sure that he's got all the information that I have so that we can try to help him get whatever he needs. Oh, okay. Well, that would be great. Yeah, no problem. I'm sure he uses an email uh, address. Yeah, he do, yeah. You tell him or ask him to send me an email, and I will pick it up from there. Okay, then. All right, then. So uh, you, so I'll just go through VOCM? Yeah, I mean, my email address is an easy one. It's just yeah. openline at VOCM.com. And if you okay. just go to our website, no, you'll find it there. Let me write that down, VOCM, because... Yeah, no problem. So my address is open line. Okay, open, open line, V-O-C-M. Yeah, it's at, the symbol for at, so open line at. V-O-C-M at, okay. V-O-C-M dot com. V-O-C-M dot com. All right. Yeah, so, so he's, he's just on com. And if any, if there's any confusion, you just go to our uh, website, and my contact is right there, too. So you'll have no trouble finding it. Okay, then. That would be great. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mr. Daly. Happy to do it. Yeah, for sure. Take care. Good luck. Take, you, too. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, so there's there's a lot to the conversation with uh, Mr. Walsh, and, you know, I finish off with what might be a bit of an odd question, but it comes to mind, you know. We're, I'd like to ask the questions of those who are in the know, those who are working inside one arena, avenue, industry, whatever the case may be, because they have much better insight than I possibly could or would. So, you know, the question was about, you know, looking for people to understand or to look up to or could be mentors or who could be champions or who could be advocates and i don't know the answer to it so paul walsh as the ceo of the association he would know a lot more than i did on that question so i'm glad i asked even if it was you know not rebuffed but he gave us a very thoughtful insightful answer to it so that's why i asked and maybe it's not the right track but hard to be on the right one all the time let's go to line number three good morning debbie you're on the air uh, hi, good morning, Patty. Um, I just wanted to put a notice out there to listeners. A little bit of a sad story if you're an animal lover. Uh, I'm out walking. I just passed the uh, Brookfield Road area by Lester's Farm, just going um, going west, just a few steps on the side of the road. There's a beautiful, looks to be deceased cat, but it's absolutely beautiful. Looks like part Siamese, the colouring, and... Um, I'm just uh, wanting to put it out there because I know it must belong to somebody's pet. They're probably looking for it. Um, I I don't know. I'd just like to let them know at least they would know this is where it is. They could probably get it, you know. So describe the area one more time for me, Debbie, where you spotted this animal. Uh, Just Brookfield Road. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a few steps past Lester's Farm going west. Okay. On the, say, on the same side of the road. It's just lying there in the grass right off the side of the road. Um, yeah, it's a shame. It's just a beautiful cat. But 
It is a shame. What I would do if I was you as well, Debbie, is I'd let the city yeah. know because the city would be okay. responsible for safe removal of the animal and then they can play a role possibly in, you know, whoever lost the cat can maybe find sure. out, you know, what happened and where the cat may be. Okay. So I would call the city let them know. Okay, thank you. I'll do that too. Okay, Debbie. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, uh, it's 11.30, so uh, absolutely time for the newscast. But, Miles, we appreciate your patience. You're next to talk about what the discussion entailed with Aaron Lee, who's one of the co-organizers of the Climate Action Rally, coming up on Friday. Let's take that break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Miles. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I uh, want to chat to you today a little bit about the, um, not necessarily the future for Friday's um, uh, climate march by the students, but more you had a couple of questions during the uh, discussion with Aaron about what can the province do, what can we all do? You know, there's only so much can be done in a run of a day, in a run of a life, we're all busy, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to chat to you about a, a few actual good policies that could be enacted pretty quickly to do a pretty good number on, you know, the province and our citizens not really having to do a lot to make a better impact. Such as? Well, do you, do you like numbers? I'm going to flurry a bunch of numbers for you real quick. <laughs> okay, I'm not too bad with numbers. Go ahead. So, so Newfoundland Labrador, we roughly subsidize gasoline around 120 to $200 million a year. That's just, that's just Newfoundland Labrador. That's through subsidies, tax rebates, things like that, helping exploration, uh, those kind of projects there. We look at something like public transit and, you know, outside the overpass uh, and Cornbrook, you haven't really got many options. DRL's fine, but if you're in Gander at 7 p.m. and you want to get out to Cornbrook, you're out of luck. So, you know, there's one thing the province could do is we could stop giving a lot of money to oil and gas, especially when we dump money to like Econor and then they lay off a bunch of workers. <laughs> Not really good for the province. But um, the province could reinvest some of that money back into public transit, give a lot of options for senior citizens to get around. You could connect most of the entire province. You're talking down uh, the Baber Peninsula. You're talking Northern Peninsula. You can have a pretty good, robust public, uh, like a public transit system. For much less than we're given to oil and gas for really no benefit to us other than like maybe we save two cents at the pump instead of you know, a little bit extra on taxes. Yeah, it, so, it would have no implication uh, at the pumps at all because, of course, we're talking about yeah. a global commodity and it's so easily manipulated, right? I mean, just look oh, at yeah. what's happening today. The Saudis are cut back production. Why? Check up the price of per, per barrel. I mean, it's pretty fundamental oh, yeah. stuff that's going on out there. Public transit is an interesting one because there's all sorts of uh, technologies out there to make public transit even greener than it is today. The trick here is if you build it, they will come. Is that true? Because when you look at public transit in other parts of the country you know unfortunately we don't have the population base for things like high-speed rail like they're putting in Ontario or what have you but will people use it because usage numbers here are up thankfully with Metrobus and yes there's plenty of communities with no such thing as public transit but I wonder would people use it well, so what's, what's interesting, I mean, when you look at setting up bus systems, you can, you know, Patty, I, I'm, you know, like I ride an electric bike and I take public transit on occasion, uh, but I also still drive a car. And it's an electric car, but it's still a car. That's still $10,000 out of my pocket a year. Um, and that's, you know, Newfoundlanders are spending upward of about $2 billion a year, all of us in aggregate, on cars. 
Um, some families got two or three vehicles and they could get by with a lesser number. But most, for the most part, a bus, whether it's diesel or gas, is roughly costing around $400,000 a year. That's well within the budget of Gander, Grand Falls, Cornerbrook, even Deer Lake could probably muster that around. Uh, and multiple communities could work together. And that's even without provincial help. If you get the provincial government on board, again, you talk about like trying to get across the province. DRL is the only option. You're in Twillingate. You're done. You're down the shore. Uh, if you're in Trapassi, you got no option. Out Bonavista, no option. But we would only need roughly around 25 buses to run daily or multiple time daily to about 90% of the population outside of Labrador. Labrador would be a different ordeal. But the main chunk of the island, you can have options. And this is not all coming to St. John's. This is people going to Cornerbrook, St. Anthony, down to, you know, get the Port of Basque Ferry. And these buses, whether they're diesel or not, it still gives people an option because, you know, you talk about we have, you know, regularly you have a lot of, you know, seniors who are on income support. $10,000 for a car, even a used one, and that's the Canadian, there's a, an automotive association, a CAA and other ones as well. They roughly say it's around $10,000 a year per car, new or used. That's total operational cost. Um, $10,000 out of a senior's pocket might be a good good like savings and you know you talk about public transit usage metro bus is up yep. and but metro bus is seeing uh the the routes with the most usage are the ones they brought down to 15 minutes because those are the frequent routes they're not really seeing a big you know uh, the a bus route that runs every hour that's not really going to cut it like paradise doesn't really have high numbers because they have five buses a day route one is running i think around 27 times a day is what it goes back and forth up down the same path or more um, those buses are getting a lot of use. You'd probably see the same thing. If we had DRL that didn't just go from Port of Bass to St. John's to St. John's to Port of Bass, but maybe also split from Grand Falls both directions, back to Grand Falls, maybe from Cornbrook out and back, even just doing that would give people four or five options a day. You might actually have someone who could leave Clarenville, come into St. John's, go to the doctor, stay here for six or seven hours, get back on another bus and get back to Clarenville the same day. And that doesn't cost the province a lot of money. Yeah. It's wild how cheap you can do it. <laughs> These buses needn't be, you know, replicates of a full-size metro bus. I know there's some private offerings in the taxi service oh, that yeah. use 15-passenger vans, for instance, those types of things. You know, whether that should be a public entity, I think, is a fair conversation. Let me also add to it, and this is not me preaching because I drive. I have a vehicle, yep. right? So <laughs> the car-centric approach that we've long taken here, not only here in this province, but right across the country, it comes with another additional cost because we just grow out. And consequently, growing out uh, is reflected on my property tax. It just simply is because when we oh, grow out and we rely on driving, what we do is we have to pave the road, put in the sidewalk, put in the water, put in the sewer, fix the potholes, plow the snow, put down the salt. Everything, Every single thing costs money. So consequently, when, yes, we're going to need to build a affordable housing and yes we're going to need to build a lot of it but where we build it how we build it and what that means for impact for other property owners in the same municipality does have a conversation that very seldom gets broached and it's a big one yeah and one other thing to briefly talk about and you bring up a very good point patty about like taxes so most of the municipal province uh, most municipalities in the province hauling around 1500 ish dollars per resident. St. John's, Mount Pearl, and Lab City are outliers. We're well above 3000 uh, And then we have some smaller towns that are around 1000 per resident. Um, you talk about tax revenue, and like, you know, someone in Paradise might not like the idea of putting a couple tall apartment buildings, but it's really wild. When you look at tax data of like, you know, St. John's, we have single buildings that are bringing in a million dollars of taxes, just one building, because they're worth like, you know, about, say, 40, 50 million dollars. Uh, and that is the same as literally hundreds of houses. 
So someone might be like, hey, I don't want to have that big apartment nearby. But it's like, yeah, but that's going to provide the services that allow you to have better paved roads, maybe a cycle path, maybe better public transit. So you don't have to have three vehicles for three people, that kind of thing. But no, you brought up a good point, Patty, as well. That's uh, it, it's all it's all interlinked. There's not just one single answer, but it's an option the provincial government can do. Give us give us some public transit. Yeah, you know, I have long used this term because I think it's been a, a apropos over the years. Is people view Metrobus and public transit in this province like it's the loser cruiser. When in other parts of Canada and North America, you see everyone from every walk of life on public transit. You can very easily be on a bus or a train or LRT in Calgary or Toronto or what have you, sitting alongside someone wearing a $5,000 suit and someone sitting alongside of them, someone who's receiving uh, social assistance. Because it is just a way to get where you're going. It's not a class declaration. It's not a socioeconomic issue. It's about ease. It's about cost. You know, in some areas, of course, a, a parking space is near and dear and expensive. I saw someone put an ad up, on I can't remember where I saw it, but it was for one parking space uh, in an underground garage in Toronto. They were selling it for $180,000, a parking space, yeah. right? I meah, mean, it, so it, it, there's it, different it's issues. Area. Yeah. Yeah, it's the total. Patty, I'll call in again to talk. If you want to talk about anything with parking infrastructure, I'll call in again another time. But no, I appreciate you having me on. Happy to take your call. Thanks, Miles. Thanks, cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, there is a discussion out there about what public transit can look like outside the more densely populated areas, like on the southeast or the northeast Avalon. You know, somewhere in the neighborhood of about half of the province's population lives here. And that might make the conversation about expanding Metrobus, uh, public transit systems, you know, express routes, things like uh, better shelters that, you know, that's all been part of the reports and the surveys that have taken place over the years. That's the issue people have is that, you know, a straight shot in my own vehicle. Even though we didn't include parking concerns and all those things, a straight shot, say, takes 15 minutes. And on a public transit, the way it's currently designed would be not 15 minutes, but 45 minutes. Consequently, people may decide that that's too much a chunk of their time to spend in commute or in transit. So maybe there's improvements can be made here, but I think the trickier part would be what it does look like elsewhere. Now, there's lots of private offerings that drive the old 15-passenger vans that will bring people in, and there'll be a stop at Costco, maybe at the Health Sciences Center, things that are predetermined based on who's booked passage, and that can be helpful. Could or should that be a public offering? I don't know. I mean, depending if you're on the Bonavista Peninsula or down the Buren Peninsula or up the Great Northern Peninsula, your thoughts on that would be more insightful to mine because, of course, I live in the city. And the concerns we have are, I guess, different. Then you talk about building up versus building out. There's also a built-in problem that we have, let's say specifically in the city of St. John's. Building up sounds right to help curb associated costs with building out because of the aforementioned. If you build out, you gotta build a road to out. You gotta put a sidewalk in, the water and the sewer, the potholes, the snow and the the salt. But building up in some areas would potentially create more problems than it solves because we've got an already congested uh, traffic issue here. Some of the roadways in certain parts of town are simply not built for any more volume of traffic. I mean, even in certain parts just outside of St. John's, very quickly grown communities like Paradise and CBS and Mount Pearl. Some of their 
traffic infrastructures, not necessarily built for the quick explosion of population there either. So again, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but we should be able to do some mathematics about what building up looks like, where that happens, building out what that looks like and what costs look like, because populations will continue to grow in more urban centers. Not because I say so, because that's been the trend over the last number of years, and that's the same thing right across the country. So how we build these houses and these affordable units, rentals, condos, uh, uh, detached homes, uh, whatever the case may be, there's got to be a lot of careful zone of consideration and conversation to be had. And again, for context, given the population growth as we see today, and even though there's weird stories out there about we may have undercounted the non-permanent residents in the country, which is a fascinating story that I still can't wrap my mind around, is the current production for housing starts looks like by the uh, 10 years from now, if we keep the same pace we're keeping, it's about 2.3 million homes will be built. The forecast of population growth, economic growth, and the need for housing units is more like 5.8 million. There's a long, long way between the two. There's a lot of reasons why it's going to be hard to catch up. You know, access to the numbers of tradespeople required is going to be one of the biggest hurdles associated with the builder unions or, pardon me, the building organizations. So there's a lot there. I have seen this morning that we're... The sources of some of the media outlets are reporting that we're going to see some sort of announcement regarding a national housing strategy, maybe later today, but before the end of the week. Now, we know at the most recent cabinet retreat, they had people who were the quote-unquote housing experts that presented to the cabinet. They didn't tell us who they were or necessarily what they said, but we're told there's a new national housing strategy coming. Housing will be one of the absolute bellwether issues in the upcoming campaign, whenever that might be. So there's going to be a lot of catch-up need to be done and some real action that you can that is tangible that the feds are going to have to be involved with because I think it was a political miscalculation to shrug their shoulders and say, housing's primarily a municipal and provincial issue. That's right. But... You know, some of the issues and some of the pressures on housing have come because of federal policy. So we'll have to go ahead and, you know, see what they had to say in there. I'm looking forward to seeing that strategy because now long-term modeling, non-existent. Let's take a break. When we come back, Daniel's in the, Daniel's in the queue to talk about busing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Daniel, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. How's it going? Doing okay. How you doing? Not too bad. Uh, calling today. Um, I was at bus stop with my daughter this morning. Uh, we're in a different zone because of French immersion, which is a whole other debacle with the uh, you know the education system of zoning and stuff like that. But uh, we're at the bus stop, waited 20 minutes past our time of being picked up, and uh, turns out that the bus stop had changed overnight. Uh, we were not informed, the school was not informed, and just so happened that I actually stayed with my daughter this morning at the bus stop. Uh, she went there yesterday morning, picked up at the same bus stop, and went to the same one this morning, and turned out that it got changed on her. So a five-year-old uh, in grade one going to a bus stop, had I just dropped her off and said, okay, goodbye, would have been left at the bus stop alone for hours. So uh, it was a good start to the morning at 7.05 in the morning. Frustrating and scary. So Yeah, absolutely. How far afield was the next bus stop? So uh, the bus stop got changed overnight. So where we live, it was on one corner, and it got moved 
uh, street up. Uh, she's technically in courtesy busing because of the French immersion. Yeah. We live in a different zoning for a different school, which is 300 meters from our house. But because she's not in English, she's in French, uh, she has to go to a different school. But uh, the bus stop, yeah, the bus usually drives past our actual personal home. And uh, we would hear the bus, but uh, we went up the street way at the bus stop because my daughter decided to wake up early that morning and uh, never did show up and phoned the bus depot and they said it changed. The school had no idea that it changed. We had no idea that it changed, but uh, it did. So, I mean, just thinking about safety, right? Like you wake up in the morning, you think your daughter's going to go on the bus that morning, you bring it to the stop. I could have had to go into work early and just left her at the bus stop. And uh, yeah, so it was not a good start to the morning. It doesn't sound like it. So now that the school itself understands that this has happened, uh, yeah. now what? Because obviously there's a distinct breakdown of communication between the bus operator and the school. Yeah, so there's apparently there's a form online that uh, you had to fill out. I tried to reach out to the actual transportation office, but it goes directly to a voicemail to try and find a form online because I guess they get a, a lot of complaints or changes this time of the year. But uh, I reached out to the education department, and they're looking at it and trying to figure out what it is because, I mean, a simple call or something would have been nice, but I, I can't be looking at a bus portal to find out every morning if my daughter's going to catch a bus stop, right? No, you shouldn't have to. Uh, of course not. No, no, no. So I just figured I'd call in and let people know that that's a reality that's been happening. And I mean, it's, it's a big safety issue, in my opinion, because as I'm not the first parent that this has happened to. And there's no communication with regards to letting parents know, because one day she's at one bus stop and the next morning you wake up and the bus doesn't even show up. So like it's it's not on the bus drivers because they're following their routes, which I mean, we're grateful and we got a great, uh, great bus driver. But the uh, communication with the transportation department is just non-existent. Wow, I, I didn't uh, I didn't know that this had happened. We had some conversation about a changed bus route in Southlands that was giving some parents some consternation, but I didn't know that there was the potential for an overnight shift, nobody the wiser, and people potentially leaving their children at the bus stop in their own neighborhood where uh, you probably feel pretty safe, and the next thing you know, the child is stood there crying at 9.30, not knowing what's going on. Uh, just out of curiosity, and feel free to not answer this question, what grade is yep. your child in this year? She's in grade one. In grade one. Uh, and are you or your wife or your partner, does anybody have the background French to be involved and in to help a French immersion student? Uh, no, we uh, we don't have any experience in French, but uh, our, we wanted to put our daughter in French immersion because it was the, the better choice for her, and we wanted her to, to do that, right? Yeah, fair enough. The reason I ask because I'm English. My French is not too bad, but our boys did early French immersion. I guess what, where I'm going here is there's a lot of English-speaking parents who are loath to consider French immersion because they don't think they can help at home, when in fact the way that the children learn becomes pretty much second nature to them very, very quickly. I'm sure you saw a dramatic difference between day one of kindergarten versus the end of the school year last year. And the French comes home with a lot of assistance for parents to be able to participate and to help where needed. So I'm just curious because I hear these conversations all the time. And as we were growing up and our children were entering school, that was a lot of chat between me and my buddies about English or French. So yeah, that's why I asked. Yeah, no, no, it's great, and I think the, the program is awesome, and the ability to for kids to, to do French is not uh, hinged upon parents actually being no. able to speak French. Like, there's a lot of parents of and teachers who have gone through the French immersion program, and their parents can't speak a lick of French. I spent uh, the summer away working with uh, some uh, French colleagues, and I didn't have a clue, but it doesn't mean that my daughter can't do French 
because of that, right? A hundred percent. I see the upside, and of course, parents of young children, they'll decide to do whatever they see fit with their kids. I do think one thing between early and late French immersion is, I don't think you quite get the benefit of French learning if you choose to do it late, but again, it's not my child. People will decide how they handle their children's own education, but I'm glad you called this morning on the busing issue, not good enough, so let's hope that this is a an alarm bell that's gone off between every school in the province and every school bus operator so that parents know where their children should stand to get on the bus. Exactly. I appreciate that, Patty. Good to have you on, Daniel. Thanks a lot. Thanks. No problem. All right. Bye-bye. All right. There you go. I mean, imagine. <laughs> because we hear and see some of the stories and, you know, whether it be a five-year-old or a ten-year-old, if you're standing on the wrong corner, unbeknownst to you, that's a relatively serious issue. You know, it could be as fundamental as simply getting to school on time or otherwise. But then it's the built-in safety concern where you know the alarm bells are going off in Daniel's belly and in his child's stomach when they're thinking, looking at the watch, the bus is usually here by now, what's going on? And the next thing you know, you make a call to find out that a significant change, like a different bus stop is in play versus yesterday morning. Something strange there. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box for the final time of the morning where VOCM Open Line follow us there. Getting some reaction to the concept of publicly funded private offerings regarding public transportation and remember once again these are just kicking off points for the purpose of conversation whether or not you think it's good or bad or you're you're indifferent to it. Feel free to chime in there. You can also do it on the email. Our email address is openline.vocm.com and my favorite is when we pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer David Williams I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.